The hollow area around Postboy Road in southern Tuscarawas County is haunted by the Postboy, who is its namesake. Houses in the area report strange goings-on of the same general type, which leads people to believe that they're all attributable to this one tragedy. The Postboy was delivering mail, either on foot or on horseback, in the days when mail delivery was a much more arduous task than it is today. He was headed for a local tavern, which was an exchange point on the mail route. The tavern still stands today as a private residence. Before he got there, however, a bandit killed him and stole his parcels. Legend says the robber waited for him while hiding behind a huge tree, a tree that once stood in the middle of the highway that's now Postboy Road. He was later seen at the tavern with the mail in his possession before disappearing quickly. Now the Postboy's ghost haunts the valley near Newcomer's Town. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. We are so happy you're here. And you know what? I don't know why, but I just have like this really persistent feeling that you're all having one of those weeks. Or at least some of you are. Those weeks? One of those weeks. And I want you to know that it's just a week and it will be over soon and that you are all full of sunshine and rainbows and you are, you know, brighter than all the darkness in the world. So just, you know, let your little light shine. Lovely. Well, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. I want to thank everyone for leaving ratings and reviews. We have a few new ratings and Jay Bones left us a review. Thank you so much. We're always so happy to hear from all of you. And we do want to encourage you to reach out to us. You can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at Just A Story Pod. Or you can go to our website, justastorypod.com. There you can find all sorts of information about these episodes. And you can also find links to our merch store where you can find fun stuff designed by Sam. That's the thing I do. I design stuff. You can get it on a shower curtain or a coffee cup. I'm practically a professional. Sure. At stuffing. You can also check out our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show. And there you'll get access to all sorts of fun rewards, such as many extra episodes and, and stickers. Now, one other way you can reach out to us is on the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach that Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. This will connect you with our super duper cool voicemail where you can tell us a story. That's kind of the deal. But you can also tell us a joke. You can also work out that thing with your mom you've been thinking about or, you know, do some past life exploration. Don't open the door till you're ready. So you sure? <laughs> But anyway, if you were Oliver Cromwell in a past life, I'd love to hear all about it. And you can call and tell me all about it. We may even use it on the show. Da, da, da. Also, I probably sent a little wonky this week. I'm getting over a hella cold and I'm very sorry. It's just your sexy voice. It's my Phoebe sexy voice. So, Sam. Smelly cat. What? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> Not that. Back to this story at hand. Oh, yes. The story at hand. What is the story at hand today? Mr. Postman. Bring me a dream. A nightmare. A nightmare. No. So today we're going to talk about some different 
Ghost stories. I love ghost stories. Another ghost story starting episode. We've been doing a lot of ghosts recently, but not on purpose. They're speaking to us. They are. Or delivering us letters. Why would anyone do that? So this story of the post boy ghost. Wait, post ghost? Post ghost. Is there a pre-ghost and a post-ghost in the post-ghost story? There's a pre-post-boy and a post-post-boy ghost. I feel like we're susing. So this takes place in Ohio, in Tuscarawas County. Dude, we've been doing a lot in Ohio, too. Ohio's got some cool ghost stories. They really do. Good for you, Ohio. You've got four letters and great stories. So in Ohio, in this area, there are a lot of places with that post-boy name. There's Post-Boy Road, there's Post-Boy Hollow... An ominous, abandoned, flooded, post-boy train tunnel. Is that where this story takes place? This one takes place at the post-boy hollow. Is it post-boy holler? Could be. Depends on who you ask and how many teeth they have. Okay, cool. So now this area is haunted by a ghost of a post-boy who legend says... Always rings twice. No. Was murdered there. That's worse. I'm sorry. And now... He still haunts the area, trying to deliver the mail. So there's a ghost that tries to deliver mail. It's a very friendly ghost. In the hollow. Around the town. Around the town, but he was murdered in the hollow. So the story goes. Does only the story go that way? Or does the story go that way? (laughs) Well, let's see. So way back, when Ohio was still the frontier in a new state, Mail was delivered by the Cochetown Freeport Mail Service, which was about a 40-mile length of roads and trails that post boys or post men would ride on. So they delivered mail on horseback? Yeah, definitely. This story takes place in 1825. Okay, so Ohio's just brand new state. Brand new state, 22 years old. Like that mental math there. Yeah, and so this 20-year-old post boy... William Cartmill was traveling from Freeport along these trails to deliver the mail. It's so funny. I did not picture a 20-year-old. Like when you're saying post boy, I was picturing right. like a paper boy almost. And he would be considered a male at this time. Like but, a man. You yeah. Am. So as he was traveling on, along the road, he was keeping up with a fellow traveler, William Johnston. And so his fellow traveler, William Johnston, had stopped to fill his canteen in the nearby creek kind of splitting up with our postboy. And as he was doing so, he heard a shot ring out, followed by a terrible scream. No. What happened? Well, the traveler returned to find our postboy shot in the back, dead. So this is this is not the ghost story. This is this is a true story. Oh, they're one and the same. The, no, it's actually a ghost story based on fact. That's another thing. Ohio's really good at. They're good at that, right? So Johnston wanted to go for help. As he was traveling on the road, he came across another traveler, a man named Funston, who had a gun on his shoulder. I'm guessing that roads in New State, Ohio, were not for people busy. I don't think they were that busy. Johnston asked Funston to help him take Cartmill's body to a nearby house, but... He refused, saying that since he had a gun, people would suspect that he had killed him. What an astute observation. So as they walked along the road, Funston took the gun off his shoulder 
wheeled, and as he wheeled, he cocked the gun and raised it to Johnson's face and told him not to come near him, saying that he thought that Johnson suspected him of being the man who killed the boy. He's a little paranoid. My God, are you going to kill me? He asked Funston. Funston didn't respond. So once this settled down, Johnson decided to go get help, and Funston agreed to bring Cartmill's body to a nearby tavern. Johnson returned with help to find the body turned over and the mailbag rifled through. That is not bringing it to a nearby tavern for help. He was not helpful. So Funston vanished, leaving Johnston to be arrested. I think the proper word is absconded. He absconded. (laughs) But poor Johnston was arrested for suspicion of murder. No, but he was trying to help. He wanted to bring the body to someone and he went to get help and he was just filling his canteen. No, Johnston. Do they continue an investigation? They don't believe? Yeah, yeah. So he maintains his innocence and the sheriff, you know, is kind of believing him. You know, they measure the footprints on the ground near where the post boy was killed. And they found that they did not match with their prisoner. And Johnson said, I'll identify the killer. How's he going to do that? Well, so the sheriff called for all of the young men in New Philadelphia to be brought to the jail. 300 men gathered in front of the courthouse. 300? Yes. And he still thinks he can pick him out of a lineup. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a hell of a lineup. Well, see, he had this identifiable scar on his hand. Oh, so they were, tricky. So he described the man to them before he saw everybody. They brought their prisoner out. Brought him out to identify from the free population somebody kind of basically to take his place. Well, yeah. Okay. So as they're walking down... Looking at all of the men, checking the hands for the scar. Johnson cries out, that's the man. And Funston responded, you're a liar. Subtle. But they saw the scar on his hand and he was arrested on the spot. Now a trial was set for November 16th of 1825. A $10 note was missing from the postboy's bag and was traced to Funston, who used it to pay for rifle repairs. He was flashing it all over town. Subtle. The bullet that killed the postboy had been removed from the body and compared with the bullet molds used by Funston and were a match. This is, honest to God, very impressive forensics for 1825. I mean, they've got the boot prints, they've got the... Ten dollar note that they've traced. They've got and they match the, the footprints. Molds. Yeah, so that is all accounted for. They've got three actual and an eyewitness. Oh yeah. So I mean, like this is a very good case for this time. Most cases don't have this much evidence. Right, and Funston would not confess. So he did not agree that it was a very good no. case for no. this time. So within two days of testimony and deliberation. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Mm. So we have a good record of this because the sheriff wrote it up, like wrote a little novel up. Oh, okay. So like for a police circular, like for those things that were actually just porn no, and crime this stories. No, 1825. It's just like a little penny novel. Okay. A pamphlet. Yeah. Okay. There were no pulp crime magazines in 1825. You don't know that. This was the equivalent. So he wrote, Several ministers of the gospel, urged by the deplorable condition of the unhappy man, visited the prison and used their exertions in impressing on his mind the duty 
of repentance for his transgressions. Though the prisoner admitted the necessity of repentance, he persisted in withholding a confession. His denial of his guilt, however, became less frequent. Hmm. So on December 29th of 1825, the day before he was to be hanged, he tried to do it himself with his suspenders and failed miserably. Oh no, Funston. Now after this, he gave his full confession to Judge Harper, telling him that he thought he was shooting a horse trader named Smeltzer who was taking that same road with a large sum of money. Now it turned out that John Smeltzer had been delayed three hours. Mm thus saving his life. But in fact, Funston had known the postboy and was shocked when he turned the body over. Oh, no. That's probably why he didn't bother turning him back over after he rifled through the bag, because he recognized him. He must have been shocked. Yeah. So on December 30th, he was taken to the gallows on a cold, rainy day. It's reported that several people died of exposure. Oh, my God. From coming to this public execution. He was just taking them all with him. It was the only public execution ever in the history of Tuscarawas County. Well, apparently they couldn't handle it and didn't have the good sense to stay home out of the cold. So, yeah, that's just too much excitement. I guess so. Too much for Ohio. So he repeated his confession before go heading to the gallows. I, John Funston, in the presence of the Almighty God, do solemnly confess that I committed the murder for which I am about to suffer death. And his final words from the gallows, Oh, may God have mercy on me. And he was hanged till dead. Now, it's said that shortly after his death, Cartmill made an appearance at the tavern, appearing to several witnesses before fading away in front of their eye. Like a phantasm. Yeah. But did he do repeat engagements? He did, of course. And one can still hear the hoofbeats echoing through the valley. People see strange lights. People also claim to see John Funston's ghosts wandering the area. Yeah, I wouldn't think they were two very restless spirits. And there's even a murder ballad. Wait, I've got it. Let me do it. Okay. In New Philadelphia, born and raised on the post road is where I spend most of my days. How'd you know? (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) The Ballad of John Funston. John Funston, a youth of but 20 years old, with light hair and blue eyes, he ventured so bold. He was young and fair and handsome, with light hair and blue eyes. He wrought his own ruin by seeking a prize. He murdered William Cartmell, a youth of renown, on a road leading from Freeport to Coshton Town. He murdered him and robbed him of money and goods, made his way home through a thicket of woods. Soon after, young Johnson to prison was bound. He denied all the charges against him were found. He said he was nigh when young Cartmell was shot, and hearing the gun, He came up to the spot. Soon after, John Funston was sporting with joy on the money he took from the poor murdered boy. Squire Major then took him and brought him straightway to New Philadelphia, his actions to try. Squire Major then took him and bound him so fast. Said he, you must lie till your sentence is passed. The jury found him guilty, and unto him they said, you must hang by the neck until you are dead. On the 20th of December, in the morning quite soon, he called to the sheriff to confess what he'd done. He confessed to his God for the crime that he'd done, and he said he was a murderer. His race, it was run. They took him to the gallows on a cold, stormy day. The crowd that was round him was awful to see. And when he got there, he wept very sore to think that he'd never see the world anymore. Ooh. 
A rousing ballad. Mine was better. I think so. Definitely. So Cartmel and Funston are still seen in this area. Both of them. Restless spirits. I mean, that'll make a ghost. Murder. Murder. Most foul. Mur- mistaken identity, like not meaning to do it, not knowing why you're... I mean, like having an errand still to run. Very important errand. Unfinished business. Unfinished business. Yeah. We'll make a ghost. That's how that works. Of course. Oh, yeah. So, you know, back in the day at this time, the new country, people were delivering mail by horse, by rider on these little trails. Pig trails, we call them in my neck of the woods. You (laughs) do. Yes. And one of the first routes that was kind of established was along the old highway from Boston to Plymouth. Now, on one point on the road, there is a fork, and a delivery rider could take it two and a half miles down to Duxbury, a small village on the coast, or they can continue on their journey. So no one wanted to take the extra day's journey and day's journey back. Mm -hmm. So the people of Duxbury came up with a plan. At the crossroads was an ancient oak to which the residents nailed a large box. This is all (laughs) pre-revolution. Oh, gosh. So this box was placed so writers could deliver mail and news for the people of Duxbury. So this is most likely one of the first post boxes in the United States. That is genius. And the tree became known as the tree of knowledge. Do not eat of its fruit, for then you will know good and evil and be like God. So this was written in the history of the town of Duxbury, published in 1849 by Justin Windsor, who would later become one of the nation's leading historians, founding the American Library Association and the Boston Public Library. Let's kiss him. (laughs) He wrote it when he was 18. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we would have been buddies. (laughs) So now the tree of knowledge is no longer there. What happened to it? Well, now there's a guide board standing in its place, wrote Windsor, bearing a representation of it. So the tree is now replaced with a guide board or a plaque due to a great storm one night. Oh my gosh, I took it on an ancient oak. Yes, it was struck by lightning. It must have been a really bad storm. As a writer recounted, tearing it asunder and shaking the surrounding neighborhood. In the morning, the remains of the tree were found by the side of the road. So now this writer, Wendell Phillips, also recounted a story of an old man that came out and said that they really needed to honor this tree. Oh my God, he's a Lorax. It was very important. It was how they got mail and information back before the revolution. And so he recounts in verse... The old man does? Oh, no. This writer recounts... Oh, you should have said it was the old man. (laughs) This writer recounts in verse what the man said. See that thou marks the spot. See that I am not forgot. Else cursed should be thy lot. The form then faded, and while the sign stands there, bearing the legend fair, tended with loving care, no curse were dreading. Okay, so Wendell says that Rip Van Winkle woke up, came out, stretched, and was like, what the hell happened to my tree? Yeah, like a Lorax. And he's like, well, clearly the tree needs a grave. Tree needs a grave marker. And I'm going to do this in a way that will be most convincing. So hold on a second. Let me get myself together. Roughs up his beard, turns around, does spooky fingers, and then does a little spontaneous tree poetry. Yeah. Cool. Like the Lorax. (laughs) Now, Most people think the tree probably came down around 
the Revolutionary War. Okay. And so people in the town say that their grandfathers and things like that remember the spot being marked as early as 1818. And a plaque of one kind or another has stood there since then. Now, in 1923, the plaque had to be removed for the expansion of the road. How did that go over? Well, a writer for the Boston Herald described the anxiety (laughs) in the town due to the absence of the sign. To the outside world, this may sound like an idle tale, but it seems very real to the residents of Tarkelin, and especially to Harry A. Randall of Kingston, who has acted as a custodian of the sign for the past 30 years just as his father acted in a similar capacity before him for an equal period. To be sure, there remains little superstitious dread, but a custom of almost two centuries is not to be regarded lightly. Folks in these parks think a lot of that sign, said Mr. Randall. (laughs) That spot has been marked longer than anyone can remember. But don't worry, the sign was replaced when the construction was done. It's so funny what you can find an allegiance to. Like, I mean, think about it. For 60 years, somebody in this family tended to the sign. So in 1937, during the town's tercentenary celebration, they decided to put up a large granite markers in different historical areas. And of course, the Tree of Knowledge was included. Clear choice. Yes, obviously. First on the list. Duh. And they said, while the members of the tercentenary committee cannot be said to be superstitious, it is just as well to be on the safe side. (laughs) Thus, the side of the Tree of Knowledge will be marked in granite with a suitable inscription on both sides. It is hoped that the curse will be averted for the next 300 years. Is the granite one still there? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just making sure. You can go see it. You know I would drag you. So, the Boston to Plymouth Bay path became incorporated into the Boston Post Road. Where Post Boys Road. Yes, all of this was. Got it. So the Boston Post Road was established by Francis Lovelace with the blessing of Charles II. Charles II had recently seized the New Netherlands, Mm -hmm. including... New Amsterdam. New York. And wanted all of the colonies to be besties and be able to communicate more easily. Good plan. It's going to end well. This is going to work out really well for Charles II. Little does he know. So the original road was mostly just like Indian trails and was traced out by John Winthrop Jr. John Winthrop of the like founding Winthrops. Yes, he's his son. So Lovelace proposed a post writer to be recruited, a stout fellow, active and indefatigable, and sworn as to his fidelity. He was to cause to be apprehended all fugitive soldiers and servants. Hmm. So on the first Monday of every month, the post writer would leave New York and return from Boston within the month. So mail was delivered monthly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they established this route, but shortly after the first ride, the Dutch arrived. And, oh, we'll know, have that back. Yeah, they took New Amsterdam back. We'll have that. And Lovelace was sent back to England in disgrace. That is a whole story. That is a fantastic dollop on that. You should check it out. <laughs> Well, the Duke of York blamed Lovelace for the loss of the colony and said he owed him 7,000 pounds. He confiscated his estate and Lovelace had a nice stay at the Tower of London, where he contracted dropsy and a few months after being released, died broke. Fun. So, like I said, writers also carried newspapers, which helped connect the towns and helped unite them in common causes. Say, you know, making a small revolution. You know. Against tyrant kings across the sea. That's basically what it was for, right? Its intended purpose. We can all agree. 
But it wasn't just post boys who traveled on the post road. Oh, no. This is America, after all. Yes. The land of equal opportunity. That's what they say. And that's how we come to the story of Madam Knight's Ride. Was she a knight? Not officially, but in spirit. School madam. Okay. So her name was Sarah Kimball Knight, and she was born in 1666. (laughs) And she took her famous ride in 1704. She rode from Boston to New Haven and then on to New York along Boston Post Road without a chaperone. Who let her do that? I don't think anybody really let her do much of anything. Yeah. Now, this was very unusual and considered very brave. As any girl who's been like, no, really, I'm fine. I can go to, I can totally go to the gas station and fill up my car after dark by myself. No, you can't. Yeah. Everyone's like, that's crazy. So it was about like that when she decided to go. But lucky for us, she kept a journal, creatively titled The Journal of Madam Knight. Boldly subtitled, A Woman's Treacherous Journey by Horseback from Boston to New York in the year 1704, which makes me think she kind of brought it back around. Yeah. She was a 38-year-old school mistress, and according to legend, she taught Benjamin Franklin and the Mather children. Oh, wow. But that seems unlikely. Why? Eh, lack of historical corroboration. I think she did. Fine. That's fine with me. We can go that way. I prefer it. Now it's fact. So she was a very witty writer. And people have always kind of had a fondness for her journal. Like throughout time, it would be reprinted in one way or another. And these little introductions would be added. And they offer as much insight about the time that they were written as her journal does about the time it was written. Oh, that's great. Kind of about women and Mm -hmm. independence and things like that. In a 1902 printing of her journal, it declares that this is the truest picture left to us of provincial New England. The journal was written midway of the hundred years during which developed into readiness for independence. The writer was a lady of good family and respectable and social and church standing, who was much too busy with the affairs of daily life to concern herself unduly with matters of state or religion. It is this absorption in her immediate surroundings which gives us perennial fascination about her account of a trip on horseback from Boston to New York. Now, in the same intro, we get a little bio about Sarah. She was the daughter of a Charleston shopkeeper who, and I quote, appears to have bettered himself by moving across the river to Boston. Oh, wow. (laughs) Burn. She married an American agent who worked for a London merchant, but her husband died while he was abroad. During his absence and after his death, she taught children and copied and drafted important letters and documents for locals. And it seems that she might have kept a shop, like a notary shop. She was like a really independent woman. Very much so. And it's possible that she rented rooms to boarders in her large house. Scantly recorded facts are quite enough to set the imagination guessing at the many things that must have happened in that North End boarding house, presided over by the plump mistress, whose independent mind and energetic, withal, somewhat feminist character, compensated for whatever she may have lacked in fortune. (laughs) And this version also includes an earlier introduction from 1825, which was written by Theodore Dwight, and it insists... This is not a work of fiction, as the scarcity of old American manuscripts may induce some to imagine, but it is a faithful copy from a diary in the author's own handwriting. Object proposed in printing this little work is not only to please those who have particularly studied the progressive history of our country, but to direct attention to other subjects of that description, unfashionable as they are, and also to remind the public that documents even as unpretending as the following, may possess a real value 
if they contain facts, with which will hereafter be sought to illustrate interesting periods in our history. Okay. So yeah, I mean, this is a great little window into yes. that time. And people are very insistent. They're like, this seems trivial, but we promise it matters. It's very important. So <laughs> I mean, why was she riding along the post road by herself? Well, it all started on October 2nd when she rode to Dedham, Massachusetts to pass some posts to a rider who was supposed to stop there. But he never showed up. <gasps> Bastard. So she inquired after the rider and found that he'd stopped 12 miles short of town. So she marches down to a local tavern and decides that she's going to hire this man named John to be her guide. And she wants to be taken to this rider. Right now. Now, right now. Young man. Now, John's wife decided that he was worth more as a guide than Madame Knight was willing to pay or felt was fair. And according to her journal, I would not be an accessory to such extortion. Then John shan't go, she said. No, indeed, shan't he. And held forth the rate for the long time that I began to fear that I was not among a quaking tribe, believing not a limber-tongued sister among them could outdo Madame Hostess. Upon this, to my no small surprise, John arose and gravely demanded what I would give him to go with me. Give you, says I. Are you John? Yes, for want of a better. And behold, this John looked as old as my host, and perhaps had been a man for the last century. Well, John, says I, make your demands. And he asked for, like, liquor. I think it's a good demand. My hostess chastised John for going so cheap, saying his poor wife's heart would break. <laughs> and so then she and John set out, jogging on with an easy pace, my guide telling me it was dangerous to ride hard in the night, such as horse had the sense to avoid, and entertained me with the adventures he had passed, by late riding and imminent dangers he had escaped, so that, remembering the hero in Perismus and the Knight of the Oracle, I didn't know, but I had met a prince disguised. She is so clever. When we had ridden about an hour, we came to a thick swamp. By reason of a great fog, it very much startled me, it being now very dark. Did a creature come out of the swamp? But nothing dismayed John. He had encountered thousands and a thousand such swamps, and having universal knowledge in the wood, he readily answered all my inquiries, which were not few. In about an hour or something more, after we left the swamp, we came to Billings's, where I was to lodge. My guide dismounted and very complacently helped me down and showed me the door, signing to me with his hand to go in, which I gladly did. But I had not gone many steps into the room when I was interrogated by a young lady. I understood afterwards that she was the eldest daughter of the family. With these, or words to this purpose, Law for me! What in the world? You here at this time of night? I never see a woman on the road so dreadful late! In all the days of my versal life, who are you? Where are you going? I'm scared out of my wits. With much now of the same kind, I stood aghast, preparing to reply when in comes my guide. To him, Madam Turn, roaring out, Lawful heart, John, is it you? How do you do? Where in the world are you going with this woman? Who is she? John made no answer, but sat in a corner and fumbled out his black junk, and saluted, that instead of Deb, she then turned to me, and fell anew into her silly questions, without asking me to sit down. I told her she treated me very rudely, and did not think it my duty to answer her unmannerly questions, but to get rid of them. I told her to come there and have the post company with me tomorrow on my journey. Miss stared a while, drew her chair, and bid me sit. And then she ran upstairs and puts on two or three rings, or else I'd not seen them before, <laughs> and returning settles her down herself down just before me, showing the way to reading. 
that I might see her ornaments, or perhaps gain the respect. But her grandam's new rung so, it had appeared, would affect me as much. I paid honest John, money and dram, according to contract, dismissed him, and prayed Miss show me where I must lodge. She conducted me to a parlor, in a little black lento, which was almost filled with bedstead, which was so high I was forced to climb on a chair to get up on the wretched bed and lay on it, on which, having stretched my tired limbs and laid my head on that sad colored pillow, I began to ink the transactions of the past day. That's fantastic. So eventually, she decides she's just going to deliver the letter to New York herself, instead no. of like dealing with postboy. This wasn't so bad. Like there are a couple of times she thinks she's going to die. Um, there's a canoe episode. What? Where she's very afraid the entire time she's on a canoe. She is much distressed by the savageness of the savages. Goes on about that for a while. I'm sure she does. And then she says that all of those liberal Connecticut people that she's dealing with have just adopted all of these practices of the savages. And they're just all there. She talks about how these like divorces of absence have become common and people are just like leaving their wives. And then she talks about how terrible the slave owners are. And she starts like gossiping. Oh, it's all gossip after this. Like eventually she gets there and delivers the letter, but then she goes back. So we get her full journey there, which takes like two months and her full journey back. (laughs) Like it's quite a story. And she is just bitching the whole time. It's it's kind of amazing. And it is a neat little window. But I just thought that we should all be equal opportunity post-road readers and discuss Madam Knight's journey. I see you put your rings on to tell that story. Just wanted to impress you. I didn't notice them earlier. No, she definitely went upstairs and put the rings on and came back. It's like, now I'm fancy, but she talks to me. (laughs) And now I'm fancy. So along the post-road, which still exists... You can see milestones. Like stones placed every mile? Or like milestones in history? Milestones like placed to mark the post road. Okay. Now, as the story goes, Knight's student, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, so we're back to facts. Yeah, not really. (laughs) Uh, Who served as the deputy postmaster general, laid the groundwork for the modern post office, and ordered the placement of these milestones to help riders along the way and to help calculate postage. Ben Franklin really was a postmaster. That's true. He's yeah, the deputy that's, postmaster. That's accurate. But why the postage thing doesn't make sense. Right. It, it doesn't because they didn't use those markers. <laughs> so the story goes that Franklin rode the post road in a carriage, measuring out the miles with a homemade odometer that he attached to his carriage. While I can see him doing that. I would love to see that. It just didn't happen. <laughs> While I can. I feel like he got the name of George Washington's biographer and was like, hey, bro. <laughs> hey, come do me. <laughs> and he's like, let me edit it and make it better because I can definitely do a better job than you. <laughs> but you see, I've got to ride in this carriage and there are lots of miles to be marked and I don't have time to do it right now. Also, French horse. Cool. Right. Well, speaking of being overseas, these mile markers have all kinds of different dates on them, including some that are when he was overseas. And also the need for markers by these postmen or postboys that were riding was not necessary. Yeah. Yeah, They knew the terrain. They didn't need tracks. And the post was not worried about helping other travelers along the path. No, they had one job and a month to do it in. And so Leonard 
LeBerry, who is the editor of the Benjamin Franklin Papers at Yale, at least he was, um, said that there's really no documentation of this. Damn it, Leonard. He's found not so much as a single reference to roadside milestones erected by Franklin or by any other persons. So, fun little tidbit. Another fun tidbit. Hmm. That all around New England, that all the old buildings have signs that say George Washington stayed here. Right. Yeah, that's a thing. I've seen those. Because he did stay in a lot of places. <laughs> Why? Because after he was his inauguration, he took a trip down the post road. Oh, and so he had to have a place to stay every night. And people were like. And it's like every 10 miles or less. Yeah, come on in. We'll put up a sign. It'll be a whole thing. And then I bet all their neighbors were like, I want a sign. We're close. I mean, it's like he stayed here. He stopped by. We saw him from the window. So as we've talked about, the traveling of the rioters on these little trails took a long time to deliver the mail. Things changed with a man named Levi Pease. He was a blacksmith and he enlisted in the Revolutionary War. And he served lots of different functions, but mostly related to transportation, purchasing horses, foraging for food. Kind of a quartermaster. Yeah. And he even was in charge of delivering horses, artillery, and supplies to the Continental Troops at the Battle of Yorktown in Virginia. Cool bio. So with all of this knowledge, he decided that a better way to deliver packages and mail was by stagecoach. And he started the first successful long-distance stagecoach service on October 15th of 1783. That is getting in on the ground floor of something. Yes. And he orchestrated a network of taverns and coach drivers along the northern branch of the Post Road to help with the week-long journey from Boston to New York. It's it's just so hard to to fathom. He cut it by more than half. I mean, that's very impressive. But can you imagine, like, where we're going, they're... Just aren't roads, though we need them. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't roads. So he won the first United States post office contract to carry and deliver the mail. He was even called in by the United States postmaster to come to Philadelphia and help design a reliable system to replace their mail delivery system between Philadelphia and Baltimore. And he basically took over the entire operation, even designing the mail coaches. Were they fancy? I'm sure they were. He also successfully lobbied for the building of roads by the states, and he retired as the father of New England roads or the father of the turnpike, basically being the person that started the building of roads in America. I don't feel like we know enough of these stories as humans. Like, I feel like we just like take it all for granted so much, like roads. Roads. Who needs roads? So I'm guessing events like the murder of... Cartmel, like the the killing of individual mail carriers were not a problem, uh, like not a frequent thing. Right, because I mean, you wouldn't know when they were coming. But if you see a stagecoach lumbering along. And they're coming much more frequently. Much with a regular expected timing and normalized route and they're big and there's no telling what they've got in there. I'm guessing people are going to start, you know, screwing with... The stagecoaches. Gut feeling. Oh, yeah. This is when the highwaymen come in. I love them. <laughs> highwaymen? Yeah. You know, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson, and Johnny Cash. The 90s country supergroup. Are there other highwaymen? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you talked did a lot of reading about one group for one of our episodes of Audio the Dime Museum. Stone Gang. They yeah. were fantastic. They're, so highwaymen were, you know, those who committed highway robbery. Right. They would go out and get people and get goods and especially horses from these people passing along the highways or the postal routes and they were a real problem. Yeah, and so one of the most notorious highwaymen roaming these new turnpikes in the early 1800s was George Walton. Walton robbed banks, stole horses, broke into houses, and of course... Committed highway robbery. Highway robbery. I feel like at some point he was like, I robbed banks. (laughs) I'm sure he was. Well, so in 1833... Walton attempted to rob a man named George Fino of Springfield, Massachusetts. Attempted to, huh? Yeah. So mm. this comes from a transcript that was pasted to a paper backing of a frame of a portrait of John Fino. Well, that's my favorite provenance ever. Is there a better primary source than this? No. Our grandfather, John Fino, was attacked by a highwayman named Walton. My father told me that he and his partner Payson were riding home that evening and when... Near Chelsea, Walton stepped out and demanded their money. Payson jumped out of the rear of the wagon and ran away. Coward, yellow belly. Grandfather jumped on the highwayman and was shot. He got into his wagon and drove home, but found he was not seriously injured and went back to Boston. His daughter later said a button on her father's coat saved his life. The bullet glanced and only made a flesh wound. God, this is Monty Python. So Walton was caught and sentenced to the state prison for a long term of years. And he died there. Now, before he died, he sent for Fino. The man who he tried to kill? Yes. And he told him he wanted to shake the hand of a brave man. Damn. (laughs) Although Walton had been a highwayman for many years, no man had ever faced him before. Netflix show, Netflix show, Netflix show. Like, don't you want a period drama? Oh, definitely. Like, special six-episode series starring Christoph Waltz? Sure. Just saying. So, he did, as was very prevalent at the time, give a deathbed confession to the warden who wrote it down and had it published. Narrative of the life of James Allen, alias George Walton, the highwayman, being his deathbed confession to the warden of the Massachusetts State Prison. It's a badass title. That could be the title of our Netflix show. Now, he had a copy printed up, as was directed by the dying man, to be given to Fino. So he had, like, a real thing for Fino. Yeah. And on this book was an inscription on the front cover. It says, liber Waltonus cute compactus est. This book is bound in the skin of Walton. That's a better title. <laughs> so Is he, it really? Yes. No. F- no. Yeah. No. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he sends his confession bound in his skin to the man he tries to murder. When does the virgin show up to light the fucking black flame candle? Oh, it's coming. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not. So here is an account from... The skin book. The skin book. Okay, yeah, let's yeah. hear it. Finally, the wagon I was looking for came along, and it contained two men, one of whom was the person I had seen in the market during the day. 
I immediately walked from my position to the wagon, seized the reins of the bridle, presented my pistol, and demanded, His money or his life. At this moment, the other man sprang out of the wagon and ran off, entering the same lane where my horse was tied. Oh, so that's been corroborated. I immediately advanced towards the man who remained in the wagon, Mr. John Fino Jr., and as I neared him, he sprang towards me, seizing me by the shoulders. I stepped back a little to give him a chance to reach the ground, which I presumed was his intention. We struggled a short time, and I began to think he was attempting to hold me. As I could not well clear myself of him, I endeavored to fire my pistol near his ear, not intending, however, to kill him, but did not much care whether I shot off a part of his ear or not. The pistol was discharged, rather, sooner than I intended, and when I had elevated about as high as his breast, the man appeared some frightened and fell as I thought on his back. I concluded he was shot through the breast. I thought, on his attacking me, that I had a different man to deal with, from any I had previously met on the highway. So the story goes on to tell about his rough life and also about how the many times he broke out of prison, (laughs) including one time when he was out and he got in a fight with an Irishman Mm. who stabbed him in the head with a knife. No. He says went in three inches and his compatriot had to pull out with his teeth. I don't like anyone enough to pull a knife out of their head with, my teeth like really you wouldn't do that for, for me? me for maybe you okay but not some dude i broke out of jail with <laughs> but he did become an ill in jail when he gave his confession and died oh that's how you get the skin so it was one of those things that was just kind of talked about for years mm-hmm. and no one was sure if it really was bound in skin you're like, it's, maybe this is just dramatic flourish, which kudos yeah. if you think to do it. Yeah. Good for you. And it was donated to the Boston Athenaeum Library by the family. And in 1944, the story was confirmed. What? A visitor to the Athenaeum a few months ago announced himself as the son and namesake of one George Arnold, who did cataloging work at this library some 90 years ago. The visitor's grandfather, Peter Lowe, had come to Boston from London where his father and grandfather were in the book business, and here he was engaged in bookbinding. The grandson relates the story that the skin used for the binding Walton's book came from Massachusetts General Hospital on the very day of his death. Walton was a Jamaican mulatto, and the skin taken from his back had been treated to look like a gray deer skin. Peter Lowe had not realized at first the precise nature of the material placed in his hands. By the time his day's work was done, however, he was in great distress of mind and nightmares fill the night that followed. Fair. Fair. That's a fair deal. You get to have nightmares if you bind a book in human skin. Yeah, and it's been confirmed that it is one of the books that actually is bound in human skin. Hi. Thank you for coming back for this week's episode of Crafting with Ed. Oh, no. Ed Keen is here. We're going to be looking at the art of binding books. Now. Let's make some happy trees. Happy what's? Happy hides. Today we're going to be working on some curtain pulls. (laughs) No, Ed, no! First, get your lips. No, not those lips. No! Do you have your nipple belt on? just makes me feel pretty. So there are, shockingly, many really disturbing stories and ghost stories around these kind of old post-rows. And, you know, we... Couldn't do an episode about post-ghost. Post-ghost. Without talking about... Emily Post. No. God, no. One day. No. Manners. Putting my foot down. Whole episode of Manners. I say no to nothing. 
that I'm doing. But no, there are many, many ghost stories surrounding the famous Pony Express. One such place is Hollenberg Station in Hanover, Kansas. In 1857, Jarrett H. Hollenberg and his wife Sophia established a way station for travelers on the Oregon and California trails. And during the time of the Pony Express, they operated one of the larger Pony Express stations. Now at this place, it's very, very much haunted. Witnesses report hearing thundering hooves approaching the station, and then shouts are heard. And of course, they'll see these phantom Pony Express riders wearing old-fashioned clothes and chaps. Cold spots are reported in the station, strange sounds, and even a young rider who still has arrows protruding from his back. He's seen in one of the station's bedrooms, lying on the floor, bleeding in an apparent agony. We have a long way to go before we get from the father of Rhodes to getting mail to San Francisco. Come on, manifest destiny. Right, basically. That's all you need to know. Come Just on, kidding. Go West, young man. Go West, young man. Haven't you been told? Yes, I've heard the song. So, during the intervening years, there was a huge boom in industry and retail. Purchase power and production power increased greatly in the early 19th century, and fewer goods like garments and cloth were being homemade. Even the working poor could afford to buy these things, and once they could, they thought, yeah, that's better. And it created a demand for these industrially produced goods across the expanding country. And in more rural areas, there were new innovations in agricultural technology, and it changed the way that Americans farmed, but people needed a way to get goods out to these rural areas where people were farming. And you might need John Deere tractor. So, county fairs, that's how that started. Right. Fun fact. That and butter sculptures. Yeah, basically the same thing. Another American... Tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Icons. And so then there was the Louisiana Purchase, because Napoleon had recently taken Louisiana back from Spain. And this made Thomas Jefferson very nervous, because, you know, that would give Napoleon New Orleans and access to the Mississippi River. And that guy, like, he's just shifty, right? Is it just me? He's a little... Mm, I just don't know about having about him, him as a neighbor, you know? It's like, there goes the neighborhood. So anyway, I think I'll just buy it, Thomas Jefferson says, and he does. Because Napoleon was hard up for cash. Right. So he decides to just buy him off the continent. And voila, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson is the proud new owner of 828,000 square miles of America. Also has a third of the country. Yes. Besides Alaska. Well, yeah. So population boom and manifest destiny occur. So between 1790 and 1849, the U.S. population grew from 4 million to 23 million. Really? Wow. Yes. And people began to feel very crowded in the, east, in the eastern states and decided, you know, just to go where there weren't as many people. So they went west, and this gave rise to this big don't-fence-me-in phenomena, and... Yeah, there was a lot of economic interest in moving west, too. Well, yeah, and people were being rewarded for doing yeah, so. Have some land. Have some land. You fought in the War of 1812? Let's, let's give you Ohio. Things like that were happening. So by boat, the journey to the west coast took about eight weeks, but over land, it took four to six months. Nothing. 
Yeah, just a hop, skip, and a cholera away from Oregon. You died of dysentery. You did. I saw the tombstone. The Oregon Territory was settled first, but until 1846, it was jointly owned by the U.S. and the British. I did not know that. In 1839, there were about 100 Americans living in the territory, and then in 1843, there were 1,500 Americans. But then there was a major rush westward after the British left. And in 1859, there were 50,000 Americans in Oregon Territory. There's one big reason for the big push west. Well, gold and them thar hills. Oh, hell yeah. So on January 24th of 1848, James W. Marshall discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in the newly acquired Territory of California. And in 1849, there were already 45,000 men, mostly, mostly men, living in California. Now, in the lead up to the Civil War, after Lincoln's inauguration, news began to come out at a very quick clip. There was a lot happening. There was. And it was all very important for the people on the West Coast to know. Like, we needed to let them know, like, hey, the, the South's really not having it anymore. <laughs> Shouldn't find out a year later. Right. By the way, South Carolina seceded. Right. So Lincoln was elected on November 6th of 1860. Then between December 27th, 1860, and January 26th, 1861, five states left the Union. And that's like in the time it takes to get to California. Basically. And so people living on the eastern half of the country found out about all this stuff, you know, from telegraphs and rail and stagecoaches. But how are you going to get word out to these western territories? Well, logically, they needed a express system one kind or another one with ponies possibly i love ponies that's what they said and they were very concerned it was absolutely vital to the interest of the country that news get to california and oregon etc because there was you know some fear that they too might secede from the union hey, you don't want this extremely resource rich area going to the confederates if you're the union or to their own country oh, which right. is also a threat bear republic right so there were some major southern leanings in the west 40 percent of californians had come from slave states and in 1850 oregon voted to just you know ban all african americans not slaves just you know avoid them. the just avoid the all whole thing and a similar measure had come up for a vote in california and only narrowly was it defeated of 53 newspapers in California, 46 of them were vehemently anti-Lincoln. Really? Yes. That liberal bastion. I know. There were incidents of arguments for pro- and anti-slavery causes leading to mm. fatal duels between prominent citizens. One was between two state legislators, and one was between a former chief justice and a California state senator. Amazing. In 1861, California asked for federal troops to be sent in to help maintain order, and Southern California even tried to secede from Northern California in 1859. And for a brief moment in 1860-61, to 61, the Knights of the Golden Circle, a secessionist organization, and another episode... That's a whole other episode. ...took over parts of San Francisco, including arsenals, the Mint, the Navy Yard, and many Army Post. Oh, I'm so ready for that episode. Yes. On February 18th of 1861, General David E. Twiggs turned over all property under his control in Texas to the Confederate States of America. Uh-oh, the West is going Confederate. That's what they thought. They're like, if Texas goes, the West goes. Oh, no. Oh, no. 
And it kind of tried to. On June 5th, in Virginia City, Nevada, a group raised a rebel flag. And Sumner, who was the commander of the Pacific, sent troops in to break up this group of 400 armed men who kind of thought they might like to not so much be Americans anymore. That's not going to go well. And then, then after this little episode, there was a huge secessionist rally that was organized by the Russians over what? Facebook. Sorry. Wrong story. Yeah. Sorry. There. there was a huge secessionist rally organized in the New Mexico Territory. And Arizona was like, we're seceding too. Cool idea, bros, and elected a delegate to the Confederate Congress. Now, troops were sent in to preserve order and keep the South from invading California and drive the Confederates out of Arizona and New Mexico. And news of all these developments would need to be carried by the Pony Express, who rode around the clock in all types of weather to deliver messages in half the time that a stagecoach could. Through rain, sleet, snow, or hail? That was kind of the idea. Hubert Howe Bancroft wrote, It was the pony to which everyone looked for deliverance. Men prayed for the safety of the little beast and trembled lest the service be discontinued. After all, it was to the flying pony that all eyes and hearts were turned. Wait a second. They had flying ponies? Magic American dreams. Wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe in Westworld. Yeah. So how were they getting mail to the West, if not via pony? I mean, Flying we ponies. didn't. Yeah, we didn't have the transcontinental railroad yet. No, we were short so, one of those. Yes. Yeah. So what were they doing? Well, boats. They were like boats. boats. Cool idea. But boats. you know what else we didn't have? The Panama Canal. That's the thing. So mainly steamships at this point in the 1840s is when it was really steamships all the way, bro. And it took like 28 days if everything went perfectly. So four weeks. And it had to pass all around South America, Central America, go down around Cape Horn, etc. And they were picking up tons of tropical diseases and bringing them to the West. And oh, yeah, it was bad. It was not a good situation. Sometimes they would stop in like Panama or in somewhere Central America and send riders from there. To get mail out to yeah, the West. Like kind of cut it in half. Yeah, steamship was, it might sound fun, <laughs> but it was a mess. But in March of 1847, Congress passed a bill to construct five steamships specifically for the purpose of carrying mail between the coast. And the first of these ships to be completed was the USS California. It was finished in October of 1848 and set sail from New York City and headed out west via Cape Horn. And they docked in Cala, Peru to pick up passengers and 400 men rushed on board. It's a big boat. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was constructed to carry 100 men. Hmm, bad at counting. Well, the men were all very insistent that they needed to be on this boat bound for California because they had heard the news that gold had been discovered at Sutter's Mill. Good reason. And so, awesome. Everybody's off to California. And so the ship docks in San Francisco and the passengers... And the crew go off to the gold fields. What? They just left. Everybody. Yeah. Oh, that's And wonderful. they didn't so much deliver the mail or have a crew to go back with. So that didn't go well. And then there were additional issues with mail ships. News that Utah was going to become a U.S. territory was dispatched by steamship in September of 1850. And it finally reached Salt Lake City in January of 1851. Well, that's fast. They didn't know they were a territory. <laughs> For months. So in San Francisco, people would watch for the mail ship from Telegraph Hill and signal when they saw it. And a telegram would go out to let people know that they should come out and meet the ship. It was like this giant piece of life. There's even a story that 
the signal was so well known that there was a very serious play going on in San Francisco. And one of the actors on stage like made the gesture of the signal and goes, what does this mean? And somebody goes, mail. (laughs) So mail ships were not a great choice in a fiscal sense either. They cost about $700,000 per year and took in about $200,000 per year in postage. And I don't know if you're awesome at math like me, but that seems like not great. So not boats. Not boats. So transcontinental telegraph. Oh, no, it's far too soon for that. Don't be silly. Transcontinental Railroad. Oh, no, John Henry's nowhere to be seen. He's, you know, being a conductor on the Underground Railroad right now. Different railroad. Different railroad. You have so little imagination. You're just never going to come up with this brilliant idea. Flying ponies. Donkeys. Okay. So the first to try to make an overland mail route was a pair of men, and they were called George Chorpening and Absalom Woodward. Good name. By the way... Old West names may be the old best names. They are amazing. They were all named William. That's true. That's actually just true. And called Bill. But they signed a contract to carry mail between Sacramento and Salt Lake City via Carson Valley. And an eastern route was established by Samuel H. Woodson between Salt Lake City and Independence, Missouri. And these were supposed to be traveled by stagecoach. But snow caused massive delays, and it took like two and a half months to make deliveries. So this is not doing a whole bunch better than boats. Not one to be easily deterred, Woodward, Absalom Woodward, started out on another venture using mules instead of a stagecoach. So the troop of five men and their loads of posts became known as Jackass Mail. Now, unfortunately, though I would love to tell you about the long and storied history of Jackass Mail, the group never reached Salt Lake City bunch of jackasses yeah well uh in the spring their remains were found uh they'd been massacred by a hostile tribe and once word spread neither mules nor men would brave the perils of the jackass mail delivery system do you know they still deliver mail via donkey where in the grand canyon oh that's adorable i've seen the disney cartoon it's a disney cartoon no the united states mail still does it donkey mail bullshit that's amazing In 1858, there was a stagecoach delivery route established between Salt Lake City and San Francisco. And the east side of the route was taken over by the Butterfield Company. And they had four subsidiaries, Adams, American, National, and Wells Fargo. Who still uses a stagecoach. As their symbol, yes. They don't still use a stagecoach for other things. I don't know that. Maybe they do. But anyway, they had 100 stagecoaches and 1,000 mules and horses. Now, their route started in St. Louis and went through Arkansas, Texas, Arizona, through California, up to Los Angeles, and then on to San Francisco for a total of 2,700 miles. Now, we have actually hiked some of this trail. I didn't realize that's what we hiked, but it really gives me a whole new perspective on what these stagecoaches did. Yeah, it's one of the hardest trails we've ever hiked in Arkansas. It was the Butterfield Trail. It was beautiful. It really was beautiful. And a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just say our friend, like, completely freaked out when we were on the trail. I may have slapped him and told him to get it together. Like, it was, like, from a movie. So, this was a very dangerous route because it passed through Apache, Comanche, and Kiowa territory. And later, it passed through Confederate territory. So, lots of hostiles. Yes. So, in 1861, after the war had begun, a group of Texas Confederates almost destroyed the entire line. And then in Missouri, 
Confederate forces burned the Butterfield Station at Syracuse, as well as all the railroad bridges west of St. Louis, and service had to be halted and was never resumed. So this is when we start to get to the idea of the Pony Express. So the idea of having this horse relay courier system has an old history. And according to Marco Polo, Genghis Khan had a system like this in which there were stations set up every 25 miles and you had a single rider and he would stop at the stations, trade horses, and might travel as far as 300 miles in a single day. Now there was a similar system used between Boston and New York and that's what Levi Peace set up with his different like inns and relay stations where people could stop and trade horses or kind of refuel mm-hmm. their bodies. But the Pony Express was a very different idea because you weren't traveling between towns like from Boston to New York. This is away from civilization. You were trying to cross half of what wasn't even the country yet through hostile Indian territory, through hostile rebel territory. Through hostile Mormon territory, really. For sure. We'll get there. That's another episode. Through mountains, deserts, extreme conditions. This was not going to be easy. Now, the man traditionally given credit for the idea of the Pony Express is a man named William H. Russell. See, they're all going to be named William, who proposed a system to John B. Floyd, the Secretary of War, in 1858. The men agreed to pursue the idea, but there was a small matter to attend to. See... Russell had not kind of mentioned this idea to his business partners, the majors and waddle components of the eponymous business, Russell, majors, and waddle company. And when he told them, they were so excited. They were like, this is a terrible idea. Are you on drugs? And he was like, no, it's really a good idea. And they argued about it some more. And he was like, I, I already said we'd do it. And they're like, fine, we'll make the Pony Express. So William Russell was born to the founding family of Burlington, Vermont, and one of his ancestors was executed for his role in a plot to overthrow Charles II. Probably got the idea from the mail. Probably so. Thanks, Charles. Now, after starting the town of Burlington, subsequent generations of Russells moved to western Missouri in the late 1820s. After his father was killed in the War of 1812, William set out on his own. And he married a Baptist reverend's daughter and began transporting goods to the West and eventually began bringing supplies to military installations in that area. And he made a very handsome profit off this venture, but never went on the routes himself. No, 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 no. He oversaw the entire operation from his cushy 20-room mansion in Lexington, Missouri. This guy knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. He always retained the qualities of a fine New England gentleman. He wore tailored black suits and had formal dinners each night and only rode on the plains in a cushioned coach. He was described as an opportunist and a gambler in business. But he also regularly attended his local Baptist church where he met William Waddle, who joined him in his business. William Waddle, another William, was a stabilizing force for the company. He had fantastic business acumen and preferred to work behind the counter, taking care of everyday matters. Now, he was actually a descendant of William Bradford, who founded Plymouth Colony. We've got a lot of like really prominent early citizens right. involved in the creation of the post. It's funny how essential that is. He was the oldest in his family. He was born in 1807, and he partnered with Russell in 1852. And they started doing freighting in 1853. 
And at this time, they had only one real business rival. Who was it? Alexander Majors. Mm. And he is quite an interesting character indeed. Really? Now, unlike Russell and Waddle, he is not a prominent founding father's descendant. Really? No, in fact, he's a descendant of a foot soldier who served under Washington and actually witnessed the surrender of Cornwallis. So that gives you a flavor of the difference in background. Mm, so he was born Poet Trash. Poet Trash, yes, yes. And he was the son of a farmer named Benjamin, who had been born in North Carolina. His father met his mother, Laureana, in Kentucky, and Alexander was born in 1814. The couple later moved their three children to western Missouri, but the journey did not go smoothly. On the way, Benjamin lost control of the wagon and had to throw Alexander and his younger brother from the moving vehicle before jumping off. Oh my god. Now a short time later, his mother fell off the back of the wagon and months after settling into their new homestead, she died as a result of her injuries when Alexander was just six years old. As the oldest son, he took over responsibilities associated with keeping the farm going at six years old. No. I wonder how much embellishment is in this story. None. No. (laughs) None. It's all true. So Majors grew up in a one-window log cabin in Missouri with his siblings and his father. And shortly after settling in, one of their first harvests was descended on by a swarm of grasshoppers and devoured within 24 hours. Oh, God. And six years later, their property was destroyed by a tornado. He's cursed. He's not got the greatest luck. When he was 13, he took over running the family farm and looking after his siblings while his father and 24 other men went out west to mine for silver. But on their trip, the party was attacked by Indians and almost died of starvation. And his dad came back five months later, so a 13-year-old in charge of a farm and two other kids for five months. And his dad comes back and had found nothing. Oh. He then he signed up for service in the Mexican-American War, where he was logically injured as... His, such good luck. He's such good luck. But after returning home, he started hauling his neighbor's crops to market in order to make a little extra money. But it was so profitable that he stopped farming and bought five wagons and 78 oxen and started freighting full time. He had a route between Independence and Santa Fe, and his maiden voyage had been completed in record time in 1848. Majors was also a devout Christian, and while on the trail, he and his party would rest on the Sabbath and he actually handed out small leather-bound Bibles to all the men that he hired. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I mean, they, that's probably a pretty pricey item. Yeah, you know? Like, that's a serious commitment. But he also had them take a pledge. While I am the employee of Mr. A. Majors, I agree. Not to use profane language. Not to get drunk. Not to gamble. Not to treat any animals cruelly. Not to do anything else that is incompatible with the conduct of a gentleman. And I agree. If I violate any of the above conditions, to accept my discharge without any pay for my service. That's a strict code. It is. And he said just having it was one of the greatest business ideas he ever had because everyone's like, oh, they're respectable. Oh, nice. PR. Yeah. In 1850, Majors and his party were camped along their route to Santa Fe. In the morning, he woke up to find that several of his oxen were missing. Oh, no. Did they die of dysentery? They did not. He discovered the tracks of the oxen. Oh. And the tracks of Indian ponies (gasps) going down a little path. And though he was unarmed, 
he was missing 34 oxen and that wouldn't do. So he decided he'd just go get them. This guy's a light under the hat, as your grandma would say. Yeah. No, he's not. He's brave Mm -hmm. and rugged. Sure is. (laughs) So he soon entered a clearing where there were six unarmed Native American men and 34 of a major's oxen. So he charged. No. And rounded up the oxen and drove them back toward camp. On his way back, he ran into the chief and 25 other men and somehow negotiated a deal with him that he would give them an ox if he just, you know, let him through. Just like, hey, just take one. And the guy's like, all right, whatever. Whatever, <laughs> I'm tired. It's early. Go. These sound like cowboy stories. <laughs> I don't care. Look, I hear a jackalope singing in the distance and I don't give a shit. I'm pretty sure there was a jackalope there watching this yes. and recorded it and sang the ballad. Of majors and the oxen. Indubitably. So, in 1851, he had 100 wagons and 1,200 oxen and 120 men working for him. And he was transporting goods to Fort Union. Sounds like his luck has turned around. It has turned around. It's gone well. But in 1854, Russell and Waddle won a large government contract and realized that they were going to need a lot more manpower to get the job done. And so they just approached their biggest competition and said, hey, want to be our friend? And he was like, cool. And this is when we get his luck turning again. Yeah. The first three years, things went smoothly until they had to go to Utah. And the Mormons, let's say, were none too happy about them coming into Utah. (laughs) Brigham Young ordered his militia to bar their entry and to destroy the supply train These feisty Mormons burned three of their wagons and drove off their oxen and destroyed a half a million dollars worth of supplies. They turned it around again the next year, making a $300,000 profit. So we have our principals. We have our showboat, Russell, gentleman. We have our man behind the counter. Waddle. Which really... Waddle, waddle. When your name is Waddle, you go behind the counter, whether you want to or not. You just waddle back there. And we have Majors, the man on the frontier. Yeah, we sure do. (laughs) And they're going to start the Pony Express. Now, each of them, you know, kind of lived up to their persona in developing the system. Russell became the go-between for the company and Washington. So he got the contract signed, got investors, money. Mm Mm-hmm. PR stuff, good. Majors took on the role of field manager. So he set up those stations that Mm. the riders would stop at to trade horses and refuel. If it smelled like work, Majors did it. But then you had Waddle, who stayed back at headquarters. And waddled around doing the day-to-day operations. Yes. And St. Joseph, Missouri was chosen as headquarters because they got really nice tax breaks. They did that back then? I didn't know they did this back then. And they donated office space and land and... They had a telegraph line there, which was handy, and they also granted a free year of railroad and two free years of ferry passage for all Pony Express employees. That's a sweet deal. It is a sweet deal. So in theory, the idea was that they would guarantee delivery from St. Joseph, Missouri to San Francisco, California in 10 days, but letters and paper only. No Amazon Prime orders allowed. (laughs) Now, horses would be driven at top speed, and they'd need to be traded out every 10 to 20 miles, depending on terrain. All right, so this is when they set up those relay stations. Yes. And they set up 200 relay stations. And at each stop, the rider would dismount 
remove their mochila, which was this kind of specially designed saddlebag full of mail. Okay, so I thought these were canvas because I'm an idiot. Of course not. They're leather and they fit over a saddle. They have like a cutout for the horn and a cutout for the rear backing of the saddle. And the rider's weight on top of them is what holds them on. Yeah, kept them streamlined. Yes. Yeah, so they would take the mochila off. They would throw it on the new fresh horse, grab a shot of whiskey, and then jump on and continue this path every like 10 to 20 miles. And whenever they had completed a certain route, then a new rider would take the next little track of the route. Right. So the little stations where they're just hopping on and off are called relay stations. And the ones where they actually change riders out are home stations. So the stagecoach stations they acquired as they purchased all these smaller companies became relay stations, just like our haunted relay station we mentioned earlier in Kansas. But these weren't close enough for them to effectively keep a fresh horse that could be ridden at top speed. And so they had to build these little relay stations in between, like you mentioned, and they were just kind of like little shacks. Mm -hmm. And so along with setting up all the relay stations and home stations, they had to prepare the actual trail, going and clearing brush and constructing willow roads. And they also had to procure horses. Now these had to be top quality. And they used varying breeds of flying ponies. They did. Some were unicorns, some were pegasuses, some were just, you know pretty (laughs) and sparkly now most were half-breed california mustangs and they were kept small they're supposed to be small light fast little ponies they were no more than 15 hands high and about 900 pounds between four to seven years old and let's just say they weren't exactly broken in ponies as one writer explained if a holster could lead a mustang out of the stable without getting his head kicked off the horse was ready to ride Although they were sometimes feisty and untrained, they were truly the best that money could buy. And they initially bought 500 horses with a total cost of $87,000, which would come out to $2.5 million today. This is a huge investment. It absolutely was. And the ponies were very important. They were the best defense against hostile tribes one of these riders might encounter. You know, the specific breed was chosen to best cover the terrain of the little track that it would cover. They were fed the best grain, meticulously cared for, and were very intelligent, had an uncanny sense of direction. With one rider, even after a long trek, coming up to the station and having to be pulled off of his pony because he'd fallen asleep. But the pony made it because it's magic. My little pony. Now, a horse couldn't do this alone. He did need his rider. And as the famous recruitment poster says, wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. Well, this is an infamous moment in Old West history right here, our printing up of the slogan. It's legendary. And it's everywhere. You see the posters. If you go out west, it's on t-shirts. It's on coffee mugs. It is famous. But is it real? So Joseph Nardone, a national executive director and historian of the Pony Express Trail Association, spent years searching through the newspaper archives trying to find 
this ad. The original ad. The Orphan's Preferred ad. But he could not find anything dating before 1902. Now, there was a newspaper ad found seeking writers in the Sacramento Union in 1860. Men wanted. The undersigned wishes to hire 10 or a dozen men familiar with the management of horses as hostlers or riders on the Overland Express route via Salt Lake City. Wages, $50 per month, and found, room and board. I may be found at the St. George Hotel Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. William W. Finney, the agent for the Central Overland California and Pikes Peak Express Company. It's not as exciting as our orphan story, but Nardone says that this ad was really effective because 200 men showed up. To apply for the 10 to 12 needed. Oh, $50 a month. Now, I've seen people argue that it's like not from a newspaper. It's from a poster. I've even seen that on the Smithsonian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But no one's produced it. So... But like, why would that survive? Because scrapbooks? Because of Bill... Buffalo Bill. (laughs) Because of him. It's hard to say. And it's hard to say if it is just something that's kind of made up in the Wild West moment. In a tall tale and moment. Yeah, like probably some of these stories Shut are told up. and some we will tell. <laughs> Jackalopes are real too. They are. They so are. But without a doubt, they were advertising for these men. Because they showed up. And Pony Express got some very interesting riders. <laughs> so the riders all needed to be very familiar with their particular section of the route since they would be required to ride at top speed at night in rain or snow. The young men were paid between 100 and 150 dollars per month it's better than fifty dollars it is and that would be equivalent to about four thousand dollars today and they received the highest salary of anyone in the company except for the very top executives for example like the station keepers and hands earned around fifty dollars a month which would be around 1550 today but this was much closer to the average income in 1860 i guess they were making kind of normal salary right but But these guys writers three times that man wiry fellows yes the company also set up mail collection points along the routes and large cities on both the east and west coast set up collection points and then sent their mail either to saint joseph on one end or san francisco on the other to start its journey the schedule was rigorously maintained and the entire route would take a total of 240 hours of perfectly executed so with all the plans in place the pony express scheduled its maiden voyage for april 3rd 1860 i'm sure there was some fanfare for this oh yes indeed so on the day red white and blue bunting hung from balconies all around st joseph missouri on rooftops there were brass bands playing and the mayor of the town jeff thompson was present to give a speech he's an interesting figure on whom Mark Twain would later base a character in his work, The Gilded Age, Colonel Sellers. Now, he generally wore a tall gray beaver hat, tight trousers, a blue frock coat with polished brass buttons, and a pair of ivory-handled pistols draped around his waist. And when he wanted to be especially, exceptionally, particularly fancy, he would add a long curved sword for flourish. Ooh, he's a fancy cowboy. He is. Now, he had been instrumental in building Missouri's first railroad. And he and Alexander Majors gave these great rousing speeches on the day of the first run of the Pony Express. Deserts blooming into roses. Oh, yes. Three cheers for the Pony Express. Making it more beautiful by putting pioneer homes. Oh, it's great. Yeah, they had many nice things to say. But meanwhile, back at the ranch. Just kidding. Meanwhile, in Hannibal, Missouri. 
who's from Hannibal, Missouri. Samuel Clemens. You're right. You get a cookie. That's Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Just letting everyone know. I'm glad you didn't give me a rope. (laughs) To mark the depth of the water. Thanks for explaining the joke. Just making sure I got it. I was like feeling a little stupid there for a second. Sorry. I worked it out. So a courier in Detroit had missed his train bound from Missouri by two full hours. And a telegram was sent to a man called J.T.K. Haywood, who was the superintendent of the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad. But he was determined that his railroad would not be the reason that the Pony Express failed. So to make up for this delay, he had an entire rail line cleared and put together a special high-speed train with just one car and an engine. Was there a DeLorean in front of it? Basically. So every switch along the route was thrown, and the best engineer that they had, Addison or Ad Clark, was called in. All along the route, people stood on either side of the tracks cheering the train on. The stops for fuel and water were pre-planned and executed basically like NASCAR pit stops. Just like the Pony Express. Yes. 206-mile journey was completed in four hours and 51 minutes, which was a new record for the railroad. And as the New York Sun put it, it was quite a scene. Everybody wanted to shake hands with the keen-eyed man who had done the great thing. It was up to blood and muscle to take up the burden where fire and steam and mechanical skill had left off. So just 15 minutes after the train arrived, the first Every rider for the Pony Express was saddled up and ready to go. The stable doors opened and off went the U.S. mail, care of the Pony Express. So who was the first rider? Yeah, it's hard to say. (laughs) There's much contention. Everyone says they were the first rider. Yes. So no one is completely certain who the first rider was, but two names are commonly circulated as theoretical possibilities or most likely candidates. And they are John Fry and William Richardson. Now, Johnny would have been the more logical choice. He was a local St. Joe boy and a champion racehorse rider and, word has it, an excellent gunfighter. Oh, well. But in 1923, a woman named Louise Platt studied the topic, and the locals that she interviewed all credited him with having made this first run. But all the contemporary news coverage names this kid William Richardson as the first rider. Why? Like, consistently. Really? Yes. Who is this guy? He's much younger than Johnny, but he's described in detail in the papers. In 1931, he finally came forward and explained the confusion. And he said he was the first to leave the Pony Express stables, but he did not complete the first run. What? His big brother was in charge of the stable and wanted to do something nice for the kid. And not to mention... That the image of this little kid, like youngster, tearing off on a pony across the frontier, dressed in a red shirt, blue trousers, fancy boots, and a buckskin jacket, as cannons boomed and brass bands played, was just really romantic for spectators. Was he an orphan, too? (laughs) I don't know. He had a brother, at least. But he met Johnny on the Missouri River Ferry. And Johnny completed the first leg of the journey. So they head off from the stables, go straight to the river, get on a ferry, ride across, and then keep going. So how'd it go? It went okay. Okay. <laughs> in the end, the mail arrived in San Francisco an hour ahead of schedule. Now, the final rider on the westbound route was William Hamilton. And as he made his way into the final bit of the journey, he was joined by a party of 80 men on horseback. And they had assembled outside town. And as he rode through, they made a straight line, one on his right and one on his left. And all rode together down to Sacramento. And the town was in an absolute 
frenzy. A holiday had been declared. Bands were playing. Bells were ringing. People all through town were out standing on their balconies, waving flags and shouting as he rode toward the Alta Telegraph office to meet his steamship. And the final leg of the journey went from Sacramento to San Francisco via steamship. This seemed to work better than going, you know, around South America. But when he arrived in San Francisco, just off the boat, not even on a horse, he was met with equal enthusiasm. They docked at night, but they were greeted with cannon fire and fireworks and bonfires and this vast procession of people waiting to walk with him to deliver the first bag of mail. Hamilton had also been the first rider to go out on the eastbound route, and he was celebrated on this journey, too. And his delivery arrived in St. Joe, also ahead of schedule. It's interesting to see all this fanfare around the first ride of the Pony Express. It shows, first of all, how great these guys were at PR. You have a point. And how important the idea of advancement was at the time in this country and, and manifest destiny. And we're going to conquer this wilderness and we are going to make it civilized and this is how we do it we have to be able to communicate just like they did prior to the american revolution which is colonies like we have to figure out a way to communicate or this area will will not become united and you know you see how join or die yeah so you can just see with all this excitement what this symbolized It symbolized the advancement of the United States into the West. Well, and you have to think that the idea of creating a more unified East and West Coast had to seem really appealing as civil war was threatening from the South. And that's one that's important to, to mention is the time that this is taking place. It seems like the country's falling apart unless we tie it back together. With magic ponies. And that's the only way to do it. And donuts. What? Donuts. I love donuts. Well, you want to hear another jackalope tall tale? Please do. Please. <laughs> so you remember Johnny? Yes. Johnny Fry. Now, jackalope tall tale has it that there was this pair of sisters with the last name of Dooley, and they got in the habit of baking little cakes for Johnny Fry when he'd pass through on his route because they fancied him quite a lot. Now, they would hold up their cakes... And he would grab them as he rode by on his pony. But after experimenting with the cakes, they realized that the most grabbable cake of all would be the one with a hole in it. And that's how donuts were invented. No, it's not. (laughs) It's 100% false. Did Jacqueline tell you that? Uh Uh-huh. You seem very convincing. He said that it happened. Did you try to milk it? The Jacqueline? Yes. Yeah, first. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's the story of donuts I hear tell anyway. That's the story of donuts. They were made for the Pony Express that day. Please don't yodel. Oh, I'm a jackalope. So I'm sure the writers came across a lot of jackalopes along their extensive route through the West. Yes, they actually made their way through the heart of Jackalope country as they crossed eight states in a distance of over 1,840 miles. They did that in 10 days? Yeah. Insane. It really is. So they passed through Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and California. So they would take the ferry that we mentioned before and enter Kansas. Now, the valley near the river 
was forested and apparently there were a lot of vines and crawling roots and things like that. And the ponies would trip a lot um, and get tangled up. But then the land opened into these big, vast prairies. The Great Plains. Yes. Now this region covers a third of the United States from Minnesota to Texas and from Indiana to the Rocky Mountains. Kansas was very desolate, very open prairie with very few domiciles. One settler named Emma Mitchell knew, recounted in 1877, Many a homesick day I saw, and many a tear I shed. I couldn't bear to go to the window and look out. All I could see everywhere was prairie, and not a house to be seen. Now, in this area, in the summer, temperatures could reach 115 degrees, and lightning storms were very common. Small streams would dry up, and water would become scarce, but in the winter, the temperatures would drop below zero. And the landscape was whited out with snow, and it became even more difficult to navigate. Yeah, it just makes me think of like grapes of wrath. Yeah, I know it's not the same place, but just the dust bowl and just desolate. But there was one interesting phenomenon to observe here, at least, and that was buffalo. Where the buffalo roam? Where the buffalo roam? Are they used to before we killed them all? Yeah, that's the idea. And these are the largest mammals in North America. And at this time, there were literally millions of them. A 1541 account describes encountering a herd. There's such a quantity of them that I do not know what to compare them with except fish in the sea. Many times we started to pass through the midst of them, and then we'd try to go around to the other side, but we were not able to because the country was literally covered with them. Now, Nathaniel Langford, who was the founder of Yellowstone eventually, explained that they were as fast as horses and that they might completely cover an area of 5 by 12 miles. The entire area was seemingly a solid mass of buffaloes. Claimed that you could feel the ground shaking half an hour before the first animal was visible when the herd was on the move. Makes me think of those like American school pastoral paintings of like waterfalls and buffalo and there's a rainbow. Always a rainbow. Yes, definitely. You know, the rooms we skip at museums. Exactly. Yeah. We look at them and go, that's pretty. Oh, pretty. Where's my flying horse? They're like two rooms down. So let's leave the land of Buffalo and continue across the Big Blue River and follow its path to the Little Blue, to Nebraska. Now through Nebraska, the riders reached the base of the Rockies and entered Platte Valley, which was a very desolate stretch. And they followed the river for access to water, but sandstorms and snowstorms both plagued them on their rides. Now because they were following the water, they also got the joy of gnats and mosquitoes. And from here, riders entered Colorado. And to their elation... I'm sure they got to run in a straight line for a little while. And then they crossed back into Nebraska and picked up the route of the old Oregon Trail, passing through Courthouse and Jailhouse Rock. And here they would, of course, confront high temperatures, sandstorms, and rattlesnakes. And then they would ride on past Chimney Rock, which is a really cool rock formation that goes up into the sky, 325 feet. Yeah, it's beautiful. Google it or go there. And then the riders would come to Scott's Bluff. Now, it was a 760-foot wall through which there's this little break known as Mitchell's Pass. Now, for years, people didn't know it stopped and didn't know there was an opening. I think it was like the end of the world. They crossed it. No. They crossed it. They went over it. But anyway, (laughs) from there, it was up to Wyoming. And here, there were rapids that the riders would ford on horseback. Oh, no, you're going to lose an oxen. No, just a horse. Just you and a horse. It's even worse than floating. And then they climbed to an elevation of over 7,000 feet. And then on to Green River and Independence Rock. And just a few miles down the trail was Devil's Gate, 
which is this narrow gash in a 300-foot cliff. And then they went along Streetwater River and up to South Pass onto the Continental Divide, which was the only real break in the mountain range. And many pioneers had passed through there. And then they go down to Sandy Creek, back to the Green River. And this trail would often be covered with snow or in really harsh conditions, solid ice on the steep grade. And then they'd go into the Great Salt Flats, which is not a great place to be. Oh, no. Then they're going to get to Salt Lake City. They do. Watch out for the Mormons. It's, it really was the worst part of the trail. It's so funny. They're so nice. I know. Howard Hughes loved them. I know. So they'd ride on from Salt Lake City out to the Topaz Mountains. And from here, they'd, they'd ride on to Nevada and go into the Carson Sink. And this was a harsh portion of the trail that had been avoided by settlers, but it was a shortcut. So the Pony Express was all about it. But the area was plagued with what's called Pogonip. What the hell is that? It is a fog that comes from ice that appears in the winter. And when it wasn't icy, the mud was like this weird consistency that would actually stick to the ponies' hooves and like clot them up in a way that it just didn't anywhere else. Now, the riders would go southwest into the Sierra Nevadas and the Cascade Range. And this was all mountain riding. And there were canyons and blizzards and steep grades. And then they entered Carson's Pass. And this was the highest elevation on the trail. Then back down to the mountains and into the desert and then into forested regions near Placerville. And here there were very wet winters and very hot, dry summers and, of course, fog. And eventually they made their way up from the pine forest to the oak forest, and Sacramento, and the paddle wheeler, and then San Francisco, and they would be done. And they turn around and do it again. Yes. <laughs> I better be paid $150 a month. It's insane. I cannot believe that people were doing this. I don't think they could either. Now, they'd done it. They'd gotten the mail there. They'd done it. They'd had their ride. The mail had been delivered on time. But could they keep doing it? That was the question. You know what they needed? What? Ramrods. What's a ramrod? So ramrods was the title affectionately given to the men on the tier just below a majors. And they were in charge of field operations, and there were seven in all. Five were in charge of specific sections of the route, and they had to be prepared to replace a rider at any time in case of an emergency. And the other two were the eastern and western managers of the express. Now, of all of these men, there are a few whose stories need to be told. Oh, good cowboy story. The first of which has to be Joseph Jack, in scare quotes, Slade. Jack Slade. That is a cowboy name. (laughs) I don't want to meet him in high noon. No, you don't. Now, he was a holdover from a stagecoach line that had been purchased by the company as they prepared for the Pony Express. And he's not the kind of man who would have taken Major's pledge. He had a past so checkered. It was one ant away from a picnic blanket. Oh, no. I just did it. Now, at 13, he'd killed a man with a rock and been sent to Texas to hide out. And by the time he volunteered for service in the Mexican War, he'd already killed 10 men. He was regarded as a fast and straight shooter. He began working with the Pony Express. But around that time, he noticed that expensive property had begun disappearing from the station at Julesburg regularly. Uh Uh-oh. So the man in charge, the manager... Old Jules Rainey, a Canadian fur trapper, needed to be fired. And Slade was sent to do this. Now, Old Jules did not take kindly to this affront. So naturally... Take care of himself. He shot Slade. Oh, okay. (laughs) Who was seriously wounded. Should have seen that coming. But he healed up, whole time, sitting there marinating in how 
aggravated he was at old Jules, and as soon as he was able, he got up and hit the trail and started tracking him. Oh no. Do you learn it from an old Apache chief? Basically. Upon discovering old Jules, he shot him off his horse and then tied him to a post and used him for target practice. Oh, okay. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Now, a short time later, he was working in his other capacity as a stagecoach line manager, and he was charged with tracking down this gang of stagecoach robbers who'd been plaguing the line. So he found the bandits hiding out in a cabin, and he burst in, and he killed three of the four men, but the other jumped out of the window and began running away. So Slade calmly approaches the window, pulls his revolver up, and shoots the man before he gets a hundred yards. Been watching too many John Wayne movies. I love watching John Wayne movies with my dad. It's fun times. But there's also the Racket Gang. The Racket Gang. They had a racket. Well, that's creative naming. It's the Old West. What do you expect? We're very literal. And they would steal ponies and wait for the Pony Express to put up reward posters, and then they'd bring them back and claim the reward. It's a pretty good racket. It's a good racket. This was occurring at Weber Station in Utah. And there are now several unmarked graves near the station at Weber, Utah. Let me guess. Old Jack Slade made them. It's believed that they were put there by Jack Slade. Now, Mark Twain regarded Slade as an excellent storyteller. They met while a wheelwright was making repairs to Twain's party's carriage. While they were waiting at the station, Slade happened to be there. So Mark Twain says he's good people. (laughs) Must be. Come have a drink. Sit by me. Well, if you can't say nothing nice, come sit by me. Now, he was a polite and courteous man when he was sober, but he was a notoriously mean drunk. Unfortunately, he was not often sober. By the time he was fired for a string of mishaps, Mishaps. It was said that he had been in 26 gunfights and killed 26 men. I wonder who said it. Hmm. Mark Twain. (laughs) Right. Was there a hopping frog involved? Definitely. Now, sometime after leaving the Pony Express, he was in a real bad saloon fight. And he was later arrested for completely wrecking the saloon and injuring several of the patrons. So I'm guessing he paid his fine, helped repair the place, and went along his way. No, he threatened the judge in the case at gunpoint. Oh, that's a good idea. And he was hanged for his transgression. There were some other fun ramrodders, such as Howard Egan, who was a former Mormon muscle. For Joseph Smith. I think that was his wrestling name. Mormon Russell. And one of the original Salt Lake Settlers. And Bolivar Roberts. Who is said to have crossed the Great Plains with just a horse, saddle, and rifle when he was 19 years old. And Ben Ficklin, who was a hot-tempered military man and served in the Mexican War. And was also in charge of freighting supplies to the front lines of the conflict between General Johnston and those hostile Mormons. And he kept on his exploring and his looking for fights. And a few years after the Pony Express let him go, he was taken out by an unlikely foe at the Willard Hotel in D.C. He choked to death on a fishbone. An unlikely end. Uh. (laughs) Not the most glorious end for a cowboy. No, no, no. But we keep talking about all these hostile Indian tribes. Yeah. And of course there were hostile Indian tribes because... People were coming to live on their land, and they weren't fond of it. It's understandable. But in May of 1860, during the Paiute War, there was an episode involving some of the men at Williams Station. 
in which they may have, you know, like abducted and sexually assaulted two Paiute women. And that didn't go over so well. Can't imagine. The men were back at the station. And it's not thought that these men actually took part in that event. It seems like it was some like people some passing through or like some like stable hands or, you know, like just not, it doesn't seem like it's these guys. But they were attacked by a Paiute war party on May 7th. All were killed and the station was burned down. But the party headed west where they drove cattle from the ranches in their path. And the next day, some warriors, acting without the backing of their council, murdered some settlers. News of the Williams Station attack reached surrounding towns, and a militia was very hastily formed. So whoever had a gun, basically. Yes, and 105 men set off to the Paiute village at Pyramid Lake. Now, the militia was not so much on strategy, and they just charged. And the warriors had been, you know, waiting on hilltops in the area, expecting them. Now, not realizing that other members of the war party had hidden in the grove before their arrival... There was an ambush immediately, and 40 men in the militia were dispensed. One of the militia volunteers had also been a rider for the Pony Express, and his name was Bartholomew Riley. He took up the route through Paiute territory when another rider was afraid to do so. Now, ironically, only a day after his successful run, one of his friends accidentally shot and killed him. So that's unfortunate. The tensions continued to increase. In late May, 800 United States troops rode into battle with the Paiute, and they killed 25 of them and drove many of them off into the Nevada hills, where they waited for Pony Express riders. (laughs) Basically. So this was definitely one of the roughest areas that the Pony Express had to ride through. On the Paiute land was Pyramid Lake, and chances are you know exactly what Pyramid Lake looks like, because it used to be the background on your iPad. Seriously? (laughs) Yes. Fun. I forget those are real places. They are. So the lake has some interesting stories around it. It's named Pyramid Lake from these soaring limestone cone-shaped formations that line the shores and jut out of the water. So the settlers and the cowboys used to tell a story about the Paiutes in Pyramid Lake. They would say... The local Paiutes would throw the bodies of malformed or otherwise undesirable babies into the water of Pyramid Lake. Supposedly, this was done in order to maintain only the strong among the tribe. Right, and they're so much less civilized than us because we just put ours in the attic. That's right. We're tying this into last week's episode. Now, the Paiute have a tail around Pyramid Lake as well. Now, they say that a tribesman once fell in love with a kind of sea creature that lived in Pyramid Lake. Now, he brought her back to the tribe and announced that he was going to marry her. And they rejected this creature. It's described as a serpent or like a mermaid-like water spirit. That's a big difference. Like, I need to know, are we talking nymph or are we talking like Well, it depends on the story because stories change with time, right? No, that doesn't happen. I know. And so sometimes there's like a a serpent-like creature. Sometimes it's just a, you know, mermaid-like creature. Mm -hmm. But when he brought her back, they all, the entire tribe rejected her and told him to bring her back to the lake. She was not too happy about this. You said we'd be together forever. And she placed a curse on all who lived around the lake that they would forever experience hardship and misfortune. Fair. Jilted. I get it. So there are many versions of the next story, and one goes that 
a mother heard a crying child at the lake and tried to pick the child up, you know, just a little baby, and nurse it. And whenever she did this, she found that the baby was actually the serpent. The rejected serpent? Yes. No. And tried to eat the mother. Tried to. I'm hopeful. It only stopped trying to devour the mother whenever it made a deal with the village shaman that it would be allowed to prowl the lake in exchange for letting the mother live. So I have strong suspicions that this real Paitel is the origin for the bastardized cowboy version of the story. Isn't our national motto the bastardized cowboy version of the story? Like those words, like printed on nickels and currency and things. Like, don't I remember seeing that? At least of like Missouri. Okay, fine. Okay. So it's said that many of the Paiute thought that this curse was what brought the white settlers. Fair. And there are still stories about this today. People hearing the cries of the water babies on Pyramid Lake. And so James Yellowjacket says that water babies were not good. If you saw a water baby, you would be dead. He said all along there in that area to the side of the road is where they were. They had those, what are they called? Those plants that smell so good, watercress with the white flowers on it. That's where the water babies are. And you better not stay at that place with water babies at night because they will jump inside of you. Okay, these are fucking creepy stories. Oh, creepy water babies. This is a creepy set of stories. They said that once you see them, they look like babies filled with rage and hate. Christ almighty. Another informant said, I think it's possible the Paiute people will want to acquire water babies and get their help. But I think it'll be a long time from now. There really aren't many people with medicine that's very strong. I have a little bit of medicine. And there are a lot that can just feel it. But we aren't strong enough to have that kind of power to connect to that kind of thing. It'll take time for people to learn and to be able to use that kind of stuff. So I figure it could come back. But not soon. Maybe the youth that we teach here will be able to one day connect with the power at this site. I love these stories. So I love it. And so that's much. something that's still told. People still you know, report hearing the cries of the water babies, especially during the summer. So thanks, iPad, for this picture of a cursed lake. Yeah, so your iPad's probably cursed. Yeah, cool. We're all cursed. Okay, this is all making sense now. Ah, there you go. So back to the Pony Express. A brief interlude. Ah, the ghost story interlude. So... I didn't think anyone would mind. I'm sorry. If you mind our water baby interlude, we apologize. Now back to the program. So another incident occurred at Egan Station, which was a relay station. And it was a large one-room structure that was very isolated. It was usually manned by three, but on this day, two men. And their names were Halton and Armstrong. They'd been eating breakfast when they heard a disturbance outside. Now pulling back the curtain, they saw... A full Paiute war party approaching the cabin. Oh, shit. (laughs) The station keepers fired their guns through the windows and cracks between the logs that made up the cabin until they ran out of ammunition, which happened rather quickly. And once the bullets stopped, a chief stepped in and demanded food for all his men. And the station keepers obliged, and after the war party had eaten, they informed them that they were going to be burned at the stake. Oh, well. Thanks for breakfast. (laughs) Oh. So the warriors gathered sagebrush and erected the stakes that would be required for such an execution. And they bound Armstrong and Halton to the poles where they were about to set fire to the kindling. And just as they bent down to do so, hoofbeats were heard, and the cavalry literally swooped in 
and save the men's lives. Of course they did. They play their trumpets. It's all yeah. I know. That same night, the Paiute party moved on to Shell Creek Station and killed three station keepers there. And several months later, they came back again and attacked Egan Station and killed all the men and burned the place to the ground. But it's not known if those two men were still working at that station at the time. Right, right. So How, what bad luck do they have? We don't know. And then at Dry Creek Station in Nevada, there was a man named Ralph Rosier who was working with John Applegate and Bolly Ballwinkle. And they were the station keepers. And on this morning, they were joined by a man named McCandles, who operated a nearby trading post. So on this morning, a shot rang out and Rosier cried out in agony. And so McCandles hears this from his trading post and rushes down to see what's going on. And as he does, Applegate is also shot. And Ballwinkle had not yet gotten out of bed, but at this point he hit the floor in his stocking feet and picked up a gun. And McCandles and Bullwinkle began barricading the door, while Applegate was badly injured. And he begged them to attempt an escape, but they rejected the idea of abandoning him because they knew the war party was coming their way. And after they rejected this idea of leaving him, he asked for a pistol. And they assumed that the injured man, you know, just wants to join the fight. cowboy. So they give him a gun. At this point, they turn back and begin firing through the cracks in the walls. And while they're not looking, Applegate puts the gun to his temple and pulls the trigger. Oh, my God. Over Bullwinkle's objection, McCandle drags him out, and the two men are able to make it to their horses and escape. Bullwinkle continued to work for the Pony Express until it was later dissolved. Wow, commitment. Yes. There's also the story of Nick Wilson, who's a Pony Express rider. Upon his arrival at Deep Creek Station in Utah... After an exhaustive ride through the desert, he was expecting to be relieved upon reaching this point. However, there was no relief rider waiting. The station manager, who said he wasn't sure what had happened to his relief rider. Mormons. Mm-hmm. Told him that he really had no choice but to complete the next leg of the journey. Now, about two hours later, he arrived at Willow Creek, which is also in Utah. And he was hoping again to pass off the mochila, go get some rest. However, this replacement rider had been killed by an Indian war party. So he decided he probably needed to rest for a minute before continuing on because now he's done two legs and he's supposed to have done one and he's got to do three and he's tired. But around 4 p.m. that day, seven Native American men ride up to the station, which was in the care of a man named Pete Neese, who is a big, strong man and a good rider, according to Wilson. He apparently, quote, worked at breaking ponies just enough to make them mean. <laughs> also, according to Wilson. So it was Nice who the party approached and asked for food. The station ca- keeper offered them a 20-pound sack of flour, but this offer was rejected. Instead, they demanded that they each be given one sack of flour. Now, this irritated Peter Nice, who fired a warning shot at the group. They were irritated, but because there were several men with guns, they rode off. But on their way, they fired arrows at this old lame cow that was being kept at the station. Now, to quote the literary gem that is Utah and the Pony Express in an account by Nick Wilson. When Nice saw them do that, it made him mad. And he jerked out a couple of pistols and commenced to shooting at them. He killed two of the Indians and they fell off their horses and the others ran. At which point, he astutely remarked, he said, now boys, we will have a time of it tonight. There are about 30 of those Indians camped in the canyons and they will be upon us as soon as it gets dark, and we will have to fight. So they were screwed. Yeah. And he continues. A man by the name of Lynch happened to be there at that time, and he bragged a good deal about what he could do. And we looked upon him 
as sort of a desperado and a very brave man. I felt pretty safe until he weakened and commenced to cry, and then I wanted all of us to get on our horses and skip to the next station. But Pete said, No, we will load up all the old guns around here and be ready for them when they come. There are four of us, and we can stand off a whole bunch of them. This guy's full of good ideas. He is. Well, just a little before dark, we could see big dust over toward the mouth of the canyon, and we knew they were coming. And Pete had all the men go lie down in the brush, about four or five feet apart. And he said, now, he said, when you fire, jump out to one side. So if they shoot at a blaze of your gun, you will not be there. Smart guy. (laughs) But we all took our places, and you bet. I lay close to the ground, and pretty soon we could hear their horses' feet striking the ground, and it seemed to me as if there were thousands of them. Such yells as they let out I never heard before. The sounds were coming straight toward us. I thought they were going to run right over us. When the party was close enough to shoot, Pete shot and jumped to one side. I had two pistols, one in each hand, cocked, all ready to pull the trigger. And I was crawling on my knees and elbows. And each time he would shoot, I saw him jump. And soon they were all shooting. Each time they shot, I would jump. (laughs) Wilson said he had not yet shot at all, but had jumped on his belly, essentially, enough times to have sort of landed in this little ravine. And his body filled it up even to the ground. And so he just pressed himself down flat in it. Sounds like he's the smart one. Yeah. I don't know how I felt. I was so scared. I lay there and listened and I, I could hear no more shooting. So then he thought he heard hoofbeats at one point, but he was wrong. It was just his heart pounding in his ears. So he lay there for two hours. It's like the telltale heart. Yes. Before crawling over to see if his horse was still staked where he'd left it. But he noticed a light coming out of the station and decided it must have been taken by Indians. So he sneaks up, crawling on his belly, gets on the ground by the door and listens. I heard one of the men speak. Did you find anything of him? Another answered, no, I guess he is gone. And then I knew it was the boys, but I lay there until I heard the door shut, and then I slipped up and peeped through the crack and saw all three of them were there and all right. I was too much ashamed to go in, but finally I went around and opened the door. And when I stepped in, Pete called out, Hello, here he is. How far'd you chase him? I knew you'd stay with him. I told the fellows you'd bring back at least half a dozen of them. I'm sure he was like, uh-huh, <laughs> sure, sure did. He said that he thinks they killed five Indians that night. I do think it's fun to have all these stories in their own words. Like, there's something about it that just makes me, like, I don't care if it's true. <laughs> you know they're inflated. I don't care. The cowboy stories. They're great. No, who's going to prove otherwise? Now, there are some other very famous station keepers of the Pony Express. Oh, yes. You mean, like, Wild Bill Hickok? That's right. The first thing you need to know, the very first thing you need to know about Wild Bill, and anyone who writes about him will tell you, is that he was dreamy. Like, everyone said so. Like, everyone. And there was, like, not even any... No homo. No. No homo, no homo. According to Theodore R. Davis, an artist for Harper's Weekly, I have seen Wild Bill appear in an immaculate boiled shirt, collar and cuffs to match, a sleeveless suave jacket of startling scarlet, slashed with black velvet, the entire garment being over-ornamented with buttons, which if not silver seemed to be. The trousers might either be black velvet or buckskin, and like his jacket, fitted in buttons quite beyond useful requirement. The French calfskin boots worn this costume fitted admirably and were polished, as if the individual wearing them had recently vacated an Italian armchair, throne, or the side street near Broadway. The long, wavy hair that fell in masses from beneath the conventional sombrero was glassy, from a recent anointment of some 
heavily perfumed mixture. As far as dress went, Wild Bill was to the border plainsman what Bo Neal was to the Army of the Potomac, faultlessly clad under surprising circumstances. He says he would have gained unquestioned admittance to the floor of most fancy dress balls in metropolitan cities. Oh my, buckskins. Or velvet. <laughs> or as George Ward Nichols put it, also for Harper's, as I look at him, I thought, his the handsomest physique I've ever seen. In its exquisite manly proportions, it recalled the antique. It was a figure Ward would delight to model as a companion to his Indian. Bill stood six feet and an inch in his bright yellow moccasins. A deerskin shirt or frock, it might be called, hung jauntily over his shoulders and revealed a chest whose breadth and depth were remarkable. These lungs had growth in some twenty years of the free air of the Rocky Mountains. His small, round waist was girthed by a belt which held two of Colt's navy revolvers. His legs sloped gradually from the compact thigh to the feet, which were small and turned inward as he walked. There was a singular grace and dignity of carriage about that figure, which would have called your attention, meet it where you would. The head which crowned it was now covered by a large sombrero, underneath which there shone out a quite manly face. So gentle is its expression as he greets you as utterly to belie the history of its owner, yet it is not a face to be trifled with. The lips, thin and sensitive. The jaw, not too square. The cheekbones, slightly prominent. A mass of fine dark hair falls below the neck to the shoulders. The eyes, the eyes, now that you're in friendly intercourse, are as gentle as a woman's. In truth, the woman nature seems prominent throughout, and you would not believe that you were looking into the eyes that have pointed the way to death of hundreds of men. Yes, Wild Bill with his own hands has killed hundreds of men. Of that I have not a doubt. He shoots to kill, as they say on the border. Clutch my pearls. Clutch my pearls. I'm going to need a break. I need some water. (laughs) Just like, I'm the mucks. (laughs) Spetsing. Oh my gosh. Um, So now that you understand that he is like a dreamboat, we can continue. You needed that context, right? Everyone needed the context. Oh, yeah. So the second thing you should know about Wild Bill is that his name is not Bill. It's not even William. His name is James Butler Hickok. Yeah, but everyone was named Bill. Everyone was named Bill. His dad was named Bill. He was born in May of 1837. His father, William Alonzo Hickok, was killed because he was an abolitionist when Bill was just 14 years old. And in Bill's early years, his family had owned and operated a station on the Underground Railroad. However, Bill decided to head out west, out of the fray and the growing disputes over the questions of slavery and the building animus between the states. So at age 17, he set out for Kansas Territory. And legend has it that the first person that he met upon his arrival in Leavenworth, Kansas, was a young boy who was about to be beaten up by a fully grown man. Now, he saved this 11-year-old boy... William Cody. You may have heard of him. William Cody. Buffalo Bill. And the two remained friends for the rest of their lives. Now, he was soon elected constable of Monticello and took a job freighting as a teamster with Russell, Majors, and Waddle. And he stayed on with the three men when they decided to start the Pony Express. In 1861, he was working as a station worker at the Rock Creek Station in Nebraska. 
when word of his dealings with the McCannell's gang made their way to the American public. This was Wild Bill's national debut of sorts. So this legendary confrontation with the gang of bandits was reported in Harper's Weekly. Bill said, well, I rode up Miss Wellman's, jumped off my horse and went to the cabin, which is like most of the cabins on the prairie. Only one room and and it had two doors, one opening in the front and the other on a yard. Like, how are you, Miss Wellman? I said, feeling as jolly as you please. The minute she saw me, she turned as white as a sheet and screamed. Is that you, Bill? Oh my God, they will kill you. Run, run, they will kill you. Who's going to kill me? There's two that can play that game. It's McCannell's and his gang. There's ten of them, and you've no chance. They've just gone down the road to the corn rack. They came up here only five minutes ago. McCannell's was dragging poor Parson Shipley on the ground with a lariat round his neck, and the preacher was most dead with choking, and the horses stamping on him. McCannell's knows you're bringing a party of Yankee cavalry, and he swears he'll cut out your heart. Run, Bill, run, but it's too late. They're coming up the lane. While she was talking, I remembered I had but one revolver and a load gone out of that. On the table, there was a horn of powder and some little bars of lead. I poured some powder into empty chamber and ran the lead after it by hammering the barrel on the table. It just capped the pistol when I heard McCann shout, There's that damn yike Wild Bill's horse. He's here. We'll skin him alive. Surround the house and give him no quarter. When I heard that, I felt as quiet and cool as if I was going to church. I looked around the room and saw Hawkins' rifle hanging over the bed. Is that loaded? Yes. She was so frightened she couldn't speak out loud. Are you sure, I said, as I jumped on the bed and caught it from its hooks. Although my eye did not leave the door yet, I could see she nodded yes again. I put the revolver on the bed, and just then McCandles poked his head inside the doorway and jumped back, and he saw me with the rifle in my hand. Come in here, you cowardly dog, I shouted. Come in here and fight me. McCandles was no coward, if he was a bully. He jumped inside the room with his gun level to shoot, but he was not quick enough. My rifle ball went through his heart. He fell back outside the house where he was found, afterward holding tight to his rifle, which had fallen over his head. I said to myself, only six shots. Nine men to kill. Save your powder, Bill, for the death hugs are coming. There were a few seconds of that awful stillness, and then the ruffians came rushing in at both doors. How wild they looked with their red, drunken faces and inflamed eyes, shouting and cussing, but I never aimed more deliberately in my life. One, two, three, four. Four men fell dead. I didn't stop the rest. Two of them fired their bird guns at me and then I felt a sting run all over me. The room was full of smoke. Two got in close to me, their eyes glaring out of the clouds. One I knocked down my fist. You're out of my way for a while, I thought. The second I shot dead. The other three clutched me and crowded me onto the bed. I fought hard. I broke with my hand one man's arm. He had his fingers around my throat. Before I could get to my feet, I was struck across the breast with the stock of a rifle, and I felt the blood rushing out of my nose and mouth. Then I got ugly, and I remember that I got hold of a knife, and then it was all cloudy-like, and I was wild, and I struck savage blows, following the devils up from one side to the other of the room and into the corner, striking and slashing, till I knew that everyone was dead. There were eleven buckshot in me. I carry some of them now. I was cut in thirteen places. All of them bad enough to have let out the life of a man. That blessed old Dr. Mills pulled me safe through it. 
after a bed siege and many a long week. So yes, this is the story that launches him to national prominence and guarantees his induction in the Old West pantheon. These are the stories people want to read in Harper's Monthly. These are the stories I want to read now. This is a great story. But it's not so much, you know, fact-based. It's a cowboy story. It's, this is actually a cowboy story. There was another account, which was given to a writer named William E. Connolly, who worked with the Kansas Historical Society. Now, it's worth noting here that the Hickok family did donate all their papers to the Kansas Historical Society. So it seems like there's more provenance. Yeah. Like, he actually interviewed him. Now, in this version of the story, the shootout that we just described has way more to do with the Pony Express, and that makes it better. Definitely. This is a great historical moment. Wild Bill and the Pony Express. Mrs. Wellman. Oh, she'll be cool. She's Wait. coming too? Yeah, she is. Oh, good. Now, and this one takes place at Rock Creek Station, not the cabin of Mrs. Wellman. And while Bill has some serious backup manpower-ish. Now, according to this account, Russell, Majors, and Waddle had purchased the station from McCannell's, our dude. But they'd kind of, you know, maybe not so much paid him just as of yet. Oops. And on this July afternoon, he had arrived to collect payment. Now, Wellman, Mr. Wellman, went inside to let Mrs. Wellman know that they needed to leave. And Mrs. Wellman came out on the porch and said, not no, but hell no. And at this point, altercation already imminent, Hickok appears on the scene, exiting the cabin and stepping between Mrs. Wellman and McCannell's, who responded, what the hell, Hickok, do you have to do with this? My business is with Wellman, not you. Hickok then walks back inside and starts making plans to defend the station with Wellman. Kind of like in earshot of McCannell's, who's just kind of left standing there. Nice. Good planning. And he's like, what, what is going on? And so he approaches the door and asks for some water because, you know, this is not how we do violent removals of people from the property that they believe they own in the Old West. Like, come on. Right, you're going to just walk in and plan plan the removal? <laughs> and he was thirsty, too, I guess. So Bill hands him a dipper of water. Well, that was nice. And then steps behind a curtain that divided the kitchen from the rest of the room. Now, at this point, someone fires a shot from the kitchen. It could be Wellman, could be Hickok, could be Mrs. Wellman, because she has quite the temper, we shall see. Emma Candles does stagger backward out of the door. Shot in the heart. Another member of the gang approached and Hickok shot him with a revolver and he fell in some brush where it's believed by most historians that Mrs. Wellman ran out and finished him off with her garden hoe. No. Yes. Then another man ran for the barn, but Bill pursued, wounding him twice and emptying two revolvers. Then Mrs. Wellman began brandishing her garden hoe and yelling, come, let's kill all those sons of bitches. <laughs> Are you related to her? Yes. Then Hickok beat a man a stock tender at the Pony Express barn with the butt of his revolver because he was suspicious what? that he was a member of the McCannell's gang. Oh, but this true. man vehemently denied it. And so his stepdaughter, the man's stepdaughter, runs out and begs Bill not to kill him. And so Bill smacks him again with the butt of his revolver, adding, well, you've got to take that anyway, no. before moving on. And then he later found a wounded member of the gang under the tree and handed a bystander a shotgun saying, put that fella out of his misery and that will show me you don't belong to the McCandles gang. And the man did so. What? This is insane. So the rest, I'm sorry, but the rest of this Marshall Teamster Sheriff spy story, we'll have to wait for another day because no, there's bad. no way we're not doing a whole episode 
on this guy eventually. <laughs> and you know, we can't talk about the Pony Express without talking more about some of the writers. You have people like Billy Campbell, who was a young writer, just 18, who signed up asking majors if he could please, 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 please be a Pony Express writer. And he's like, sure. Once he was thrown from his favorite horse, Ragged Jim, into a buffalo wallow, and the horse got spooked and ran back to the station they left from, a stagecoach discovered Billy walking the trail with his mochilla on his way to the next station. He caught a ride and picked up the route when they arrived. Another time, he also found himself facing off with a pack of wolves without a gun. But he had a horn, which he started blowing wildly the rest of the distance to the next station. And Billy Campbell went on to become a state senator. So then we have Nick of the Shoshone. He started writing at the age of 15. Now at the age of 11, he had run off to go live with the Shoshone. He says he was adopted by the mother of the chief and learned their language and customs. Now once, while he was on his route in a canyon, he ran into a war party of four Native Americans who ambushed him. He spun his horse around and found three other Native Americans blocking his road out, the chief among them, who was a mean-looking one-eyed man who took his revolver and told him the Pony Express had no right to cross their lands. With all hope lost, suddenly, he recognized Tabby, a Native American man who had been friends with his adoptive father, though he would not make eye contact with him at first. After the men had walked away to discuss what to do with him, Tabby walked back towards Nick and addressed him. He said the others wanted to kill him, but he would not allow it. But he had to insist that Nick and his male not cross their land. Nick implored Tabby to let him through on this one run, and he promised that he would tell the Pony Express not to take the route again. If he went back to the station, the mail would be late. Tabby agreed, and Nick went through safely. But it was the last time he or any other pony rider ever used that route. Another episode involving Nick is at Pyramid Lake. Nick arrived there to find that the old station keeper had fled, fearing Indian attacks. Now, there were two young boys whose parents had died of cholera on the trip out west, and they asked Wilson to have a meal with them. Wilson agreed, thinking he could evaluate the situation reported at the next station. As they were turning his pony loose to graze, two Indians rode down the station, and the young boys began firing their revolvers. Now, trying to put himself between the Indians and the boys, he ran towards them and was struck in the skull with an arrow going in a depth of two to three inches above his left eye. The party rounded up the ponies and rode away, leaving the boys to tend to poor old Nick. They tried desperately to remove the arrow, but ended up just breaking the shaft off. They were sure he was dead, and they rolled him under a cedar tree. They ran to the next station to get help, and he lay there all day and night, until the men and boys returned from their next station. They were completely shocked to find him still alive. A doctor eventually removed the arrow and told the boys to keep a wet cloth on the wound. He lay in a coma for six days. Then Major Egan, Wilson's superintendent, stopped by to check on him and demanded that the doctor do something. For another 18 days, he stayed on death's door, but he eventually made his recovery and weeks later was back on the pony. But for the rest of his life, he did have a terrible scar and he wore a hat at all times. So J.G. Kelly was one of those wiry little writers who was 100 pounds and who was riding his route through the heart of Paiute territory when bullets started whizzing by his head. He realized that they were coming from a nearby wagon train, 
but he rode on, rattled but needed to deliver the mail. On his return trip, he encountered the same wagon train and approached it using some language that Majors probably would not approve of. They apologized, telling him that they had thought he was an Indian because a lone rider often rode ahead of the war parties drawing fire. Kelly also took over a route for a Mexican Pony Express rider named Bart Riles, who approached the station slumped in his saddle, and when they lifted him off of his horse, they realized that he had been shot in his chest. He'd been attacked by a band of Paiutes and turned back for the nearest station. He made it back, but died of his injuries a short time later. Kelly went on the remainder of his run, and as he was passing along a narrow trail, he saw some bushes rustle, and without stopping his horse, fired at them. The movement stopped. Turns out the next day, a group of soldiers were killed in that exact same location. Now, another unfortunate incident for Kelly was when he accidentally rode into a Paiute camp. Shit. Like, can you imagine that feeling? Like, I can't even process what that would be like. Show crap. Now, according to him, he met with their chief, Buffalo Jim, who spoke English and asked for his tobacco. Kelly told him that he'd give him half. The chief was impressed and let him pass. According to another writer named Howard Ranson Egan, a lot of the local tribes were very interested in capturing a Pony Express rider because they were all very curious about what the hell could be in that mochila that was so important. It's got to be important. And one rider that carried an extremely important message. Pony Bob. Pony Bob. Pony Bob. Okay. His name was Robert Haslam. He was English. English cowboy. Like, get your head around that. Got it? No, neither do I. Let's keep going. So he was born in 1840. And on election day in 1860, he was sent out to scream that Lincoln was elected to all the forts like a cowboy Paul Revere. And they were like, the British are coming. What the hell? (laughs) This is very confusing. But one of his most important tasks was delivering Lincoln's inaugural address, which detailed the administration's new policies. And California needed to evaluate it in order to understand where they fit in in this brewing conflict. Not only did Pony Bob complete the longest ride in history, but he also participated in completing the fastest trip ever made by the Pony Express. People in the American West were so far removed from the seat of government in Washington, D.C. that they were eager to receive news of a political nature as quickly as possible. In March of 1861, Abraham Lincoln delivered his inaugural address. Whether people in Nevada and California supported the Union or the Confederacy depended largely on the policies set forward in the address. The ride carrying the address out west broke all previous records, reaching San Francisco in just seven days and 17 hours. And there are many stories of Pony Bob's exploits. He rode 13 Mustangs on a 120-mile ride through Nevada Territory, part of which was traversed through hostile Paiute Indian country. According to his journal, he had a running fight with warring braves for three or four miles. One of their flint-tipped arrows pierced his arm. Another broke his jaw, knocking out five teeth. Haslam reportedly escaped by shooting their horses out from under them. Despite his injuries, he completed his leg of the express route in record time. He also arrived at Cold Spring Station to discover that the station keeper had been killed in a raid and all the ponies were gone. He continued on to Sand Springs and told them what happened to the last station. He insisted that it was too dangerous for them to remain there, and so he and the keeper set out again. The next morning, the station was raided and burned. Arriving at the next station, Bob was met by a militia who had just been attacked by a Paiute war party, and they told him it was far too dangerous to continue his run. 
but the mail had to go through, according to Bob, Indians or no Indians. And he went on and arrived at Buckland Relay Station only three and a half hours behind schedule. After all that, he picked up the route for another boy who'd heard of the Indian exploits and was too afraid to go on Bob's normal run. All in all, his total trip was 380 miles and he made it in under 40 hours. He said, I was rather tired, but the excitement of the trip braced me for the journey. And as all of these brave and stupid writers completed these arduous task of delivering the mail to the other side of the United States territory at the time, like we said, they were expanding the Union. They were the link to the rest of the country. And the Pony Express did not last long. No, it lasted about 18 months. And it was very expensive and dangerous. Yeah. But the real reason it was shut down was due to the creation of Transcontinental Telegraph and the Transcontinental Railroad. It was much easier and safer to communicate. I think this is a really important and interesting chapter in American history. Because I think that it sort of brings us back to founding principles, as funny as that might sound. Because we are not a nation with a national identity. We're a nation of ideas. We're a democracy. We're connected by sharing ideas and rallying people around causes and finding a way to preserve our union. And this kind of illustrates the links that people have gone to over time in order to preserve the exchange of ideas, in order to preserve democracy. And now it's hard to think of not being in communication, of not having that constant feed of information, that easy accessibility that we have 24-7 access to. And you hear people joke, like, I would die without my phone. Are they joking? Probably not. (laughs) But it's hard to imagine a time where it would take a month to get a letter. Or four months to find out you were a United States territory. Or even 10 days to find out that the country was falling apart. But the exchange of ideas is something that's so vastly important and has shaped history in so many ways. You can see that our national history is really shaped by the roads that we carved out of the wilderness to send ideas back and forth. First, it was in the colonies, little post roads that allowed them to come together, join or die, and share ideas about maybe being our own country. And when the fabric of the country was fraying all around the edges, it seemed very probable that the American experiment would end in failure. We were saved by words in a really strange way. We were saved by ideas, the transmission of ideas, the beautiful words of Lincoln's inaugural address, being thrown in a leather saddlebag (laughs) over a pony and ridden through the wilderness to reach our fellow citizens. We've always been afforded the opportunity to imagine a fantastic future that's just out of reach, but it's been a core principle, a defining characteristic of Americans that we were willing to reach for it and reach out to each other. Though passions may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over the broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. And that's not just a story. 
No, that's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.